This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorne is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, Behind the Shield 10, for a one-time purchase. 
Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name's James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Gary Hayes. Now, for any of you that listen to more than a few episodes, you will realize that there are so many people on here that have the courage and vulnerability to truly tell their own story. And Gary is an absolute epitome of this. He is a successful football player. He is a veteran. He is a law enforcement officer, each of which carry an element of esteem. However, behind the curtain, he was sexually abused by two different predators as a child. He was assigned to the morgue after the 7-7 bombings, responded to numerous suicides as a police officer, and then found himself in the very location he used to respond to, preparing to take his own life. I cannot urge you enough to listen to this entire conversation as Gary truly is a leader in this field and is this vulnerability, this courageous storytelling that will pull the stigma of sexual abuse, of mental health, of suicide out of the shadows, front and center where it belongs. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Gary Hayes. Enjoy. Well, Gary, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you to Paul Maleri for connecting us. And then secondly, welcome you to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I think Paul's got a lot to answer to. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. He keeps feeding me awesome people. So uh, here we are. Um, for very first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? So I live in, in the UK uh, in a place called Hornchurch in Essex, which is for some reason uh, uh, placed in the southeast of London. Um, so, yeah, um, being I was born in East London, I've not moved too far away from... Uh, my roots there, I say. Yeah, it's quite funny listening to you and Paul in the interview that he did with you in his podcast, X Job. I was trying to figure out who was talking. If I kind of got distracted for a second, you guys sounded so similar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we have um, our footprints pretty much the same, really, in relation to where we sort of we were born and where we grew up, um, and obviously places that we've lived and worked. So, uh, yeah. Brilliant. Well, let's start at the very beginning. And so tell me where you were born, but also tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah. Um, so I was born in Stepney in East London, um, which allegedly is in the sand of the Bow Bells. So that makes me a, a cockney. Um, and we lived in Stepney in East London um, for a couple of years. Um, we moved onto the Isle of Dogs. Um, where we lived for a few years, and I started my schooling. Um, I'm the eldest of four children. I've got two brothers and a sister. 
Um, and basically, uh, from my parents' uh, point of view, um, my dad um, had a number of jobs before he, he spent nearly all his work and, uh, career working for the Postal Service. Um, my mum was primarily a hairdresser, and she had her own little business. Um, but in between that, um, she did numerous other jobs just to uh, ensure that we had clothes on our back and food on the table. Um, it's that atypical story of it was tough back in the mid sixties, in the you know into the early seventies and eighties. Um, so you had to do what you had to do. Now I heard you say that your dad, um, as you said, was uh, a postal worker, worked with Royal Mail, but you said he worked nights. Now. Some, you know, a big, big kind of running theme now is the impact of shifts on you, on me, and our profession. Did yeah. you observe any sort of negative impact on your dad working nights while everyone else slept? Do you know what? It was weird because with with my dad, he would come home um, from work, and I remember this quite clearly. Um, from a very early age, when I started playing football, uh, stroke soccer, um, Dad was always keen to come and watch. So, you know, Dad would come home from work uh, in the morning. He would grab a couple of hours sleep and he would then come and watch me play, say, two games of football on a Saturday for two different clubs. He would go back to bed for uh, an hour or so before he went back to work and then he would do the same sort of thing again on the Sunday. Um, and to be fair, my Dad was um, – he worked really hard um, – for all of us, you know, um, and he would follow whichever activities the rest of the siblings were doing. But he had this real passion for watching me play football. And as I progressed through the various stages of that game to to plan sort of semi-pro. Um, but I didn't see anything in relation to how impactive working continuous nights was on him. I think it wasn't until, you know, later on in life when, you know, like your good self, we go through those periods where we have to do a set of night duties and then go back in for another early duty before you get a bit of a break. Um, and it does eventually take its toll on you, physically and mentally. Absolutely. Well, let's stick with football because I know this is a, you weren't just you know a recreational player. You took it to a pretty high level. When did you <laughs> first start playing and walk me through that journey from you know a British schoolboy to where you ultimately played? Yeah, um, it, I think, you know, back in the day, um, so we're talking, I would suggest, probably the early 70s now, um, it just seemed a natural thing to do. Um, there wasn't a great deal of other sports on the TV that I remember from being a kid. Um, and football just seemed to be, I'm not saying natural thing, um, but it was something I just took up and... Um, you know, I was very lucky. I, I sort of progressed um, as I grew um, from playing sort of part football, you know, rep representing the various schools that I went to, um, to playing um, sort of representative football in relation to playing for my local uh, district. So I played for Barking and Dagenham district. So you're out of the whole district, which contains thousands of, of young kids, um, you go through a selection process and then you you end up getting picked to to represent your your district. Um, that then led on to being picked for the county of Essex, um, which in itself was quite an achievement from my point of view. 
Um, again, given the size of Essex, there are hundreds of thousands of young men wanting to um, to make that grade. Uh, in between that, I sort of I was playing men's football. Um, funny enough, for the post office um, when I was sort of thirteen years of age. So I had a very good sort of um, how can we put it learning curve in relation to men's football from kids' football. Clearly, um, we didn't have VAR back in the day, and it was it was a very physical game. So. I learned a lot of tricks, got a lot of injuries, um, but it put me in good stead to to crack on uh, and end up playing sort of semi-professional football as I sort of came of age, as it were. Now, question for you. Being an Englishman living in America now, one of the big yeah. kind of, you know, aha moments, I guess, for lack of a better word, was <laughs> that you have this super high level of athleticism in high school and college in American sports, especially baseball and basketball and football. Um, and But the problem is, I think that there's such a pressure put on these kids that a lot of them, as you said, do get hurt. And then you see this drop off. You see, you know, from the elite sports to, you know, what we call the kind of Uncle Rico there that, that I used to be. I could have been this amazing person, yeah. but my ACL, my, and these are 18, 19, 20 year olds that shouldn't be breaking. But then when I contrast that to the UK, you see the pub leagues, the Saturday leagues where it doesn't seem like we break our kids and they continue to play sports, whether it's football, rugby, cricket outside of uh, high school and college age. What's been your observation of the sport of football carrying on, you know, well into your 30s and 40s, uh, you know, in contrast to what I'm seeing in America? Yeah, I mean, again, I think other than the sort of technology um, in relation to the way the game's played and developed now with all the tactics, um, the weight of the football, I mean, back in our day, blimey, heading the football, um, it was like heading a medicine ball. It was just that heavy, especially when it rained. Um, you know, obviously the footwear that we had wasn't as sort of slick as the guys wear now. Um, and that just, again, shows you the level, I think, of where the game's gone. Um, but we go in fits and starts over here. You know, I'm not suggesting we're going to get any further than a knockout game on, on Sunday in the World Cup. But if we did progress to a level, we got through to the, say, the quarterfinals or the semis, there'll be another mad rush of, of young kids wanting to be the next, I don't know, Grealish or Foden or whatever. Um, but it's about the FA over here maintaining that level as we, you know, we saw it with the rugby. We've just watched the wheelchair rugby. And goodness me, if I could find a club that would take on a fat old man like me now, <laughs> I would love to have a go at that. That was just amazing. I mean, them athletes are brilliant, you know, both able-bodied and the uh, disabled guys. Um, we are putting a lot of money into our games over here now, but I feel that we, we lack so much <clears throat> in relation to that. You know, as a kid, I used to play... Uh, I was lucky enough to go on a lot of football tours around Europe and places like that. And the standard of stadium alone, as opposed to our local parks, we, um, you know, it was just a world world apart. Um, and I just wish that we paid a bit more um, interest into facilities, you know, and encouraging 
men and women, boys and girls, to get involved in in any of our sports. But it's, the game itself has changed a hell of a lot from when I played. Now, are you still seeing a lot of older people playing, though? I mean, the perfect example of, of creating a terrible environment that does not promote health and activity is the last two years in the UK and America yeah. with the pandemic. Everything that yeah. was healthy was shut down. Everything that was shit was delivered to your house. So yeah. what, have, what have you seen? I mean, I'm romanticizing about the England of old, and I know a lot of my friends do still play. Is that yeah. still as much of a culture, the 50, you know, 30 and 40-year-old man or woman yeah. still playing? Um, I'm 56 now, just turned 56. So the last game that I played, um, I must have been 49, I think, and I played in a, in a charity game, funny enough, over at Charlton's ground. They're in our, where I, I can't remember, Charlton, the Premiership or the First Division there. Um, but I played over there. And our average age, I would suggest, was about 45. Um, you know, I've played along with some veterans, 50-plus, um, and it's great because the game's a bit slower. Um, still can be as physical, don't get me wrong, because, you know, inside your head, you're still the 18-year-old Superman, but clearly... Um, you're more of a blubber man than yeah. that Superman. Your knees don't agree. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's uh, your knees, your ankles, your back. Um, but yeah, we still have senior leagues over here. Um, and I think it's great if, if men and women can still get out at that age. I mean, I played football for the best part of 45 years, nonstop. And I loved every second of it. Um, and I would... I would really encourage, you know, young people to, to get there, get out there and do it because not only does it keep you, you fit and healthy, it keeps your mind focused as well. And it takes you away from the darker areas of society today, doesn't it, with all the gangs. And, you know, I know we live in completely different worlds in relation to criminality um, purely by the fact of, you know, you've got firearms wherever you want to go in the States, whereas over here it's very restricted. But, you know, we're, we're blighted with um, knife crime and young kids going out, stabbing each other, whether it be for gang initiations or just for the sheer fact that they can, you know. So from that perspective, if we could draw younger people away from that temptation of becoming that thug, gangster, whatever they want to call themselves, then, you know, again, that's great. Yeah, well, I think tribalism can be positive or negative. I mean, for example, football in the 80s, there was some very negative element to it. And you get the National Front, all these people that would embed yeah. themselves and change shirts just so they could go, you know, push a wall on someone or kick their head in. But then you look at the World Cup, especially today, where I, I would, you know, again, hope that a lot of that has been kind of smothered out now. And there's a lot of national pride, especially the lionesses. When I kind of realized yeah. the pride behind our women's team in, in England, it was, it was incredible. I mean, that oh, is was what, amazing. yeah. So I think, you know, when you can get a kid who is wayward and rather than go, you know, join the local gang, but now they join a sports team or they're mentored in law enforcement or fire or, you know, some of these great mentorship programs. It gives them a tribe. That's all they're looking for is a tribe. But it's up to us in the community to show them there's another way outside of stabbing someone so that you get a, a blue jersey. You know, that's that's a great analogy. And it's a great way of looking at it, you know. And I think that we spend far too much time in, I don't know, belittling, 
berating people, especially youngsters, you know, irrespective of their ethnicity. Um, you know, we don't spend enough time encouraging them to be good, to be active, to be proactive. You know, there is a, sadly, you know, you'll get it in any walk of life, there is a small element that is just on pure destruct. They've got nothing else in their mind other than to cause misery and mayhem. Um, but there are a lot of people that sit on that fence and it's sort of like, do I dip my toe into the misery and mayhem side of life? Or do I just, you know, sit on the fence and watch it happen around me? Or do I do something positive? You know, I mean, when I was a kid, if there was going to be a fight, and I'm sure you'll remember, it was just a fight. There was no weapons or very rarely would you see uh, a knife or anything of that nature being used. It might be, I don't know, a bit of wood if that was close to hand or, you know, the odd baseball bat. But nowadays it's just it's terrifying. We, we had some – a young kid was stabbed literally about a mile away from where I live today, um, a school kid, and it, it, over a local park. And, again, you just think to yourself, you know, we don't know the facts behind it, but – why did he end up getting stabbed? What what brought him to be in the situation he found himself in this, this afternoon? You know, being involved in a knife fight, a knife crime. It's it's shocking. Really is shocking. Yeah. Yeah. I had a guy on Varg Freeborn who wrote a book on, on violence and he actually came more from the the criminal element initially. So it was an interesting story. He ended up, you know, training police and all kinds of people. Yeah. But he just was very clear underlining, and this is for the adults of the world, like if you're going to get into an altercation, it's got to be something that you're ready to die over. And when you yeah. put that into perspective, whether it's, you know, your girlfriend cheated on you or it's a turf <laughs> thing or someone cut you up in a car, I've called mm. myself reminding myself, okay, yes, that guy almost hit me and, you know, driving like an asshole. Yeah. But, you know, what is going to be solved by me getting out? I mean, even if I quote unquote win the fight, you didn't win the fight. Yeah. Nothing positive yeah. comes out of it. So then, you know, that's what's so scary about America. You know, our gun laws really aren't complicated. We, the answer is to reduce the amount of, you know, violence there is, period, whatever weapon. And then a lot of those guns, the desire for those guns is going to diminish. You can have them the same way as I had them growing up a farm in England, but people aren't going to be reaching for them the moment they have a problem with someone. They're actually going to have to put their big boy pants on and solve it, yeah. you know, the old-fashioned way, like you said. You know, very often it's when, when we look at that, um, you know, it's like looking at the dangerous dogs or the dangerous dogs act. A dog will only be dangerous because of the person that's holding the lead. There are, don't get me wrong, those certain circumstances where, Unfortunately, dogs do become, you know, lethal weapons in their own right. But it's like someone holding a gun. If you've got the intent just to point that weapon down a range and release the rounds that are in that magazine down the range at that target, and when you hear stop, you apply safety, well, that's great. It's disciplined, it's controlled, it's in a controlled environment. If you're going out with the safety catch off, one up the spat, ready to go, and you're, I know your intent is simply to kill as many people as you can or injure as many people as you can. For no reason, there's a problem, you know. So I sort of, I 
don't agree with the gun laws in one sense, but in the other sense, you know, having I've been fortunate enough to, to visit Florida twice, um, and you know, I respect the the way the land out there as I did where wherever I went as a, as a young kid or in the forces or even on holiday. You know, you go to somebody else's country, you abide by the law, the law and the rule that's there. You know. Absolutely. Well, you know, you obviously sound like you have a, a somewhat of a background in firearms. I know that comes from the military. So walking through your career journey, when you were still in the school level, were you thinking of any of the uniform professions or were you purely focused on football then? I was, um, I was focused on just playing football. For me, that was the, that was the go-to. Um, I was growing up at the time playing with young young lads who ended up becoming professional footballers and, and reaching the dizzy heights of even, you know, um, playing for uh, England um, and being captain of the, of the national side. So I was very focused. I was doing okay at school. Um, and, you know, me and academia have never really um, sat side by side or shook hands or gone out for a beer. Um, however, it, I was I was doing all right. But I could have done a lot better. Um, and I remember when I was at my secondary school, um, you know, and I was playing then uh, a good standard uh, of football. Uh, there was a kid in one of my classes. He just kept on going up on about his brother who was in the army. Um, he was in a regiment called the Royal Green Jackets. And, he, you know, his brother was doing all manner of stuff, playing a lot of football. So to me, I thought, hello. He's doing a lot of adventurous stuff. There seems to be a lot of football being played. And he's he's based out in Germany, but they go all around the world. That sounds like a me job. Um, and, you know, I sort of fantasised about it a little bit. And then, I don't know, I just got focused back on the football. Girls were really coming into play, as they do at that young tender age. And you get somewhat distracted. Um and I, I, I don't know, I just one day, another lad at school just said, well, I'm going to join the army. I was like, okay, let's go and do it. And I was always up for a challenge, you know, whatever it might be. And we went to our local recruiting office. Um, and as I'm sitting there with a sergeant, I went into an office with this sergeant. We had a good chat. I come back out into the main office and my mate had buggered off. He disappeared. Um, and I had sort of commit myself. Um when I'm told my mum and dad, they were mortified because this was, say, 1980. I left school in 83. Um, my mum and dad wouldn't let me go in as a young junior soldier because of all the issues out in Northern Ireland. Um, and they just were like, no, you're not doing it. Um, so I, I got an apprenticeship. Um, and whilst I was going through an, an apprenticeship, I, there was a fella. Um, we just got on really well with each other. Um, and he was in his mid to late 20s then. And he just sort of said to me, you're wasted here. Why don't you join the army? I was like, blimey, you're the sort of second person I've sort of come across to suggest it. And he had been in the Royal Tank Regiment. And he gave me all these wonderful stories of going around the world, playing football, <laughs> girls. Beer was another big factor now, so that was cool. Um, and I just thought, you know what? I'll have it. Um, and I went away to a place in Birmingham called Sutton Coalfield, um, where you did a three-day 
a testing sort of thing. It numerous well, two days of physical tests, so you were you were pushed to your limit. Um, but bearing in mind, I was really fit young man at the time through the football. I smashed loads of uh, records apparently whilst I was there. Um, and I thought about the regiment I wanted to go to, um, but they sort of come second place. I thought about the parachute regiment. You know, we'd not long had the Falklands conflict and the parachute regiment and the Royal Marines. They were clearly up there because they're the, the sort of go-to regiments in this country. Um, but in the back of my mind, I still had the Royal Green Jackets. Uh, I was interviewed by a, a colonel from the parachute regiment, and he we had the chat. And the bottom line was that he said, look, we start in June, July of that year, uh, 85, I think this was now. And I was like, oh, it's a shame. I'd like to get in a, a lot earlier. I just want to get it started. And a green jacket colonel walked past and he went, right, he says, we start in uh, April. So it was like happy days. So off I went to Winchester, um, enjoyed my course, um, and probably endured the most hardest 20 weeks of my life, we there was over a hundred of us joined in our cohort. I think it was well over one hundred and twenty guys. Um, and when it comes to the end of the twenty weeks, of uh, and I mean absolute brutality, fifty five of us managed to pass out and go to our respective battalions. So we we lost over well over a half um, because it was just physically demanding, mentally exhausting um, and the brutality um, I'm not saying you know, I'm not going to go all PC on you but it was what it was back in the day and it made a man of you and there was a lot of stuff going on as we say with Northern Ireland um, and you had to be switched on and fit and ready to go um, so yeah I joined my battalion out in Germany um, I think it was on a Tuesday Wednesday I was playing for the company football team we had an intercompany match um, which we we won and I scored a couple of goals. Um, the following day I was told I was representing the battalion and we was playing, uh, I think it was 14 Sigs Regiment. They were based down in the town where we were uh, in Cellar. And it was quite an important game and we beat them and I managed to score a couple more goals. And yeah, you, you, all of a sudden you become one of the battalion's sports people for want of a better word, which, you know, given that I'd only just joined the battalion, you were getting some other favours more than most. You know, I could go for breakfast and have steak and eggs for breakfast, whereas everyone else was getting porridge and slop. You know what I mean? <laughs> All it, of the twist it was, uh, yeah, you know, it was, uh, it was good. It was, you know, it was bloody hard standard of football. I mean, the physicality there, you know, uh, it was shocking. Nothing like, you know, you see the footballers today, they fall over if their air falls out of place. You know what I mean? But, no, it's heartbreaking watching this poor young man rolling around. Then I turn on the, <laughs> Uf, the UFC and people are getting kneed in the face and shaking it off. <laughs> but, you know, again, going back to the earlier point of the game changing, it's um, it's changed beyond all recognition there. You know, um, I look at it, I, I played with absolute passion and heart because, you know, I was representing whoever I was representing and that's what I was there to do for 90 minutes you know um, very much a team player looking out for the, the guys I was playing with and along uh, alongside of and yeah I was I was passionate right up until my last game you know it was uh, and I was fortunate enough to be captain of the team now and 
you know, it was great because my family there, my kids were there watching me play. You know, my dad was still there watching me play uh, and other family members. And I'm, you know, I was an old boy then, but it was, uh, it was great. It's, it's, I've got some fond memories of, of playing football. When I got hired by my first fire department, there was one of my fellow graduates who was, I think he was a chef before. And we got sent to our stations. And at that time, I think I was assigned the same station as him, or I was certainly there that day. And he started doing this, I forget the name of it, but some sort of lasagna that was super bougie. And we got banged out on a, on a call. And so I don't know if it was a fire or not, but they left him there to cook. And we all went and mitigated the emergency. And I remember saying to myself right there and then, okay, don't ever be so good at cooking that you miss the very thing that you got hired to do. That would be brutal. Was there an element of you being this high-level footballer that maybe kept you from some of the deployments that you actually wanted to go on? Um, it was a, a little bit of that, um, but the, the deployments drew him. So when I joined my battalion, they'd just come back from a six-month tour of Belfast. So in effect... I should have joined the battalion in their sort of last eight to nine weeks of their deployment. Um, I was about to go away for a two-week, um, what they call a NITAP package, um, and then go and join the, uh, the deployment. So by the time I would have done that, the battalion would have been still working very hard. However, they would have been winding down, getting ready to come back and you know hand over to whoever was taken over from them. So... You know, when I joined the battalion, they were just coming back from that tour. Um, but then we went through an, an immensely quiet pre period of, dare I say, very quiet theatre. I.e., there was, it wasn't our turn to go back out to Ireland. You know, um, there were no other conflicts taking place that we were, dare we say, eligible to get involved with unless you was part of special forces. Um, so, yeah, you know, being out in Germany, it was it was great, and I didn't realise how great it was until we got posted back to the UK. <laughs> I ended up playing, you know, I ended up playing for a, a team out in the place I was stationed at, which back in the day was probably the equivalent to our, our then old fourth division. And you know, it was full of expats, and it was great. You know, I didn't have to worry too much about the language barrier because shyster's shyster in any language, you know. Um, and it was, yeah, again, it was good. It was just you were playing with people who, who were passionate about, about that sport. And then I just got completely frustrated when we come back to the UK. I've, I've gone on tours around the world, but not on, dare we say, on the level of Northern Ireland. Um, and I just thought, you know, I joined to go out and be an infantry soldier. My battalion and my regiment, and I know everyone says it was, and is the best in the British Army, although we've gone from Royal Green Jackets now to becoming rifles, which is an amalgamation of a lot of other uh, regiments. But we we did everything differently. Um, we didn't really stick to the rules. You know, um, my battalion, we would, our nickname was the Cowboys, literally, because we would not conform to most rules and regulations the officers would really have to win our trust as opposed to us uh, winning theirs. Um, clothing, we wore what we wanted to wear, you know. Um, I remember working with the 101st Airborne Division 
out in Germany from the States. And they were just blown away. They thought we were actually special forces when we turned up because <laughs> no one had the same bit of kit on. Um, we all said and did different things. Um, our skill levels were pretty much standard, but they were very, very high. Um, you know, we played football against the, the guys and, you know, again, completely um, different style, for want of a better word. So come 1989, I'd left uh, and I got married. I met my wife. We'd come back from doing some jungle training um, and I met my wife who was then preparing to join the Metropolitan Police and that was in 1987. Um, a tour that I'd been working on didn't come off and I got sent to the Falklands uh, instead of where I wanted to go. Um, came back from that and just thought, you know what, I've had enough of this shit. There was a rumour that the battalion was getting disbanded. Um, I wouldn't and didn't want to get rebadged with an, another unit. Um, and, you know, I left. That, that's just sort of me. I'll, I'll get... I think frustration plays a big part in my, my game, for want of a better word. And, yeah, I just thought, let the wife to be have her moment. I've had three great years being a tear away, you know, but discipline, for want of a better word, in, only in some areas. Um, and, you know, she started her career in Eastern and uh, East End of London, not far from where I was born. Um, but funny enough, I, I joined the fire service, the London Fire Brigade. I started training in, uh, with my squad, two, 289. Um, and a wonderful lady called Danny Cotton, who ended up being the commissioner. Danny's been on the show. Conference. Yeah, she's amazing. I mean, I just utmost respect for her, James. She is just a, an amazing lady. And she's um, been thrown under the bus royally in uh, this latest Grenfell investigation. You know, the whole thing, it just stinks of corrupt. Um, you know, and what happens to her? It's beyond shocking. Um, but again, you know, I've got to week six of being in the fire service. Of our, I think it was, I think what was the basic training back then? Was it 15 weeks or something like that? Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, and then I sort of, certain key members of my family uh, started dropping dead and it was just sort of like, oh, God, you know, it's, um, I'm not saying my family, um, I don't know the best way to phrase it, had any sort of notoriety over here, but we had our matriarchs, and especially on my dad's side, and when they started going, it was like losing Godfather 1, Godfather 2, Godfather 3, and the family were broken. We, you know, quite a big, we were quite a big family then, and I just had to get everything in order. So I had a chat with my DO, the training DO, and he just said, look, go away, get yourself sorted out, get the family done, and then come back. Well, I tried to get back into the fire service from 1989 up until 2002. Oh, wow. I could not, for whatever reason, get back in. And I was gutted, you know. Um, really, it, I just thought to myself, how emergency services can do one. You know, all, all my wife's friends and colleagues were saying, join the police. And, you know, I'd attempted to join the police. I'd left the army with an exemplary record. Hadn't been any trouble with uh, the police. Didn't have a criminal record sort of back then. Um, and just kept getting knockbacks. And, you know, you just think to yourself, I cannot sit down in front of another shitload of forms to get another knockback. 
So, um, you know, I was working in the security industry at the time. I've been doing a lot of close protection work. Um, and at that point, um, in 2000, I was working for an American firm in London as part of their in-house uh, team. It was all right, but, you know, it just, it was a little bit restrictive. Um, and I, in between that, I've been doing, um, sort of digressing a wee bit, uh, over the years, a lot of stuff on TV programs over here, uh, especially one called The Bill, with whom you saw Graham in our little short film earlier. Yeah, I watched it since I was uh, a kid. Yeah, well, do you know what? Again, you know, when it first came on the telly, it was like, oh, that looks, you know, interesting. And a good friend of mine was the police advisor on it, whom I met in early 1991. Um, and he just said, look, do you want to come on? do some firearm stuff. It was like, yeah, all right. And it sort of, I was on and off the show for about 15 years, I think, and doing other films. And it was a great laugh. And, you know, Graham, we just end up having the most amazing friendship from it, you know. Um, and, again, having worked in the celebrity world, when you meet people like Graham, restores a little bit of faith back into um, that industry, for want of a better word. So, yeah, you know, I kept getting pushed um, to join the police. And then one of my other friends just said, look, you know, our lot are recruiting. And he was in the British Transport Police. He was a uh, detective sergeant at the time. So just put an application in. And so I did it a bit reluctantly. Um, and within three months, I was actually starting at our training school, um, which was, you know, it sort of took me by surprise. Um, and given that I was an old man then, I was like 33, 34, um, it did feel a little bit uncomfortable being amongst all these young, dare we say, fresh-faced kids who hadn't really had a lot of experience behind them. I want to just go back in time to put two questions of you. One, one I meant to do earlier on, we're going to talk obviously a lot about mental health. One of the yeah. real kind of, you know, reveals to me as I navigated this journey was the power of childhood trauma on mental health in the first responder. So whatever happened to us before we ever put a uniform on, when you look back at your childhood, you talk about how great your parents were and how your dad was at the games. In retrospect, are there any elements when you look back now that you think would contribute to some of the challenges you had later in life? Yeah, you know, again, growing back up in the day, you know, whatever little spare time my mum and dad had, um, you know, like most parents or uh, younger people, they'd like to go and enjoy themselves. So, you know, you'd get someone to come and look after your kids who you trusted. Um, my parents did that. Um, but unfortunately, this individual broke their trust um, and he used to abuse me as a, as a young child, sexually abused me. Um, and, you know, even at that young age for me, I think, you know, I look back on it now and, it, yeah, it's haunted me from the day that it first started and it will until the day I die. Did that individual ever touch my brothers or my sister? You know, and bearing in mind... When that first started, I was, I don't know, six or seven. Um, and my youngest brother would have been two. 
possibly free. Um, and, it, you know, he used to come into our room. I won't get too graphic, but, you know, he'd do what he did to me. But, you know, in my room were my two younger brothers and, you know, my sister had her own little room. Um, and it it felt like what he was doing to me used to just go on virtually all night long. You know, I have no recollection, uh, re recollection sorry, of the sort of longevity of it. But I just knew that when mum and dad were going to have a night out or whatever, in a, a very difficult way, that's what I knew was coming my way, um, irrespective. And I couldn't tell me mum and dad because, you know, I'm not suggesting they wouldn't have believed me, but, you know, what this individual said would happen to me, should I tell me mum and dad? And, you know, straight away he's planted those seeds of doubt. And, you know, I then realistically I would suggest had a bit of an issue around trust, especially with older members uh, of my mum and dad's sort of friendship circles and whatever. Um, and eventually he stopped babysitting us for whatever reason and that the abuse stopped. But I, even at that young age, had become very um, uh, protective of my brothers and my sister and, you know, people that were close to me even at that very young age. And then, you know, I went off and, you know, started playing football I was about six or seven, I guess, and played for various teams. And then played for a team um, that this guy, his parents' house, used to back onto our, <clears throat> onto our school field. Um, and he would be out there, this is in the sort of early 70s, watching us play football. And I mean, when I look back now with grown-up eyes and the the information that I have. Um, he was planning and contemplating his next move. And, you know, if the ball went over the fence into his mum and dad's garden, he would encourage us sort of to, to go around and, and collect the ball. So, you know, you, you're young kids, you're stupid, and you're all winding each other up because one of us has got to leave the school premises without getting caught and then go and get this football from this strange bloke's ass and then come back and start playing football again before he got caught for being out of camp gate. Well, this this bloke, he was only a young fella at the time, we ended up playing for his football team. Um, and it didn't take too long before the abuse started again. Um, and I wasn't aware um, that it was happening to um, other members of the team. Um, I thought it was just myself. Um, and, you know, my mum and dad never owned a motor car, so we had to use public transport to get to all my football games or if, we, you know, someone could give us a lift. And invariably, you know, this, this guy would bring me back from matches that sometimes my dad couldn't get to and, you know, he'd abuse me in his car and, you know, training or even, you know, he would do it in front of, the adults, but he did it in such a way that the adults didn't realise what he was doing. You know, if for whatever reason you was a, a sub or you come off 
he would automatically come and sort of stand behind you and then just pull you into him sort of thing and he'd be rubbing his groin against you and, you know, communal showers. Um, you know, we always had jump in them after the game and we'd be sliding up and down on the floor, which is always funny because it's like playing Skittles. You'd go from one end of the shower room to the other, knocking people flying. And, you know, for us, it was a good laugh. And, you know, there's all these bare bums and wheelies flying about and there he would be. Now on reflection, I remember it. And he'd just be stood there, you know, watching us. And um, But thankfully, um, you know, when I moved on to another team, that sort of stopped. But I think, you know, it certainly did put up a, a barrier around me where I found it hard to uh, trust people in, in positions of trust or authority. Um, I became a little bit punchy um, if I felt something was going to go wrong. Um, I did tend to get a little bit aggressive towards what I would perceive to be a potential perpetrator. Um, and, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It was just it was a difficult time. Um, but would you believe we have just gone through our um, court system over here um, with that football coach and he will be sentenced for many offences on in 12 days' time on the 13th of December. So I shall go to Crown Court and hopefully watch him get the sentence he deserves and hopefully he won't come out of prison other than in a coffin. Well, firstly, thank you for sharing that, mate. Just because simply this, this is behind the curtain and this is something that, you know, I, I've been quite immersed in this this kind of uh, area now for a while, but it really wasn't until, I mean, I've done over 700 interviews now, really having the courage to just open the door for these early lives and, and you know, by no means press anyone to say anything they don't want to. But when you open the door, you realize, well, shit, so many police, fire, medics, military members were abused as children i mean you know predominantly male and we think yeah. you know there's this kind of disney world out there and everyone's just <laughs> fine and oh you got ptsd because you were in the falkland islands yes yeah. that was a the contributing factor as well but yeah. if the the foundation that you're on was already crumbling because you grew up in addiction or you were adopted and you know physically like uh, violently abused in some home somewhere or you were sexually abused this is a huge, huge part of this conversation that, you know, obviously also tacks on to our behavior as we progress through our career, which we'll get to in a bit as well. So I was painfully so surprised that I was so far off the mark, off the mark, excuse me, understanding how many of our men and women in uniform had such a fucking awful childhood. And that's why I've talked about a lot recently. I think it's imperative, not that we filter out those people and never let them put the uniform, but give them mental health counseling at the front door of these professions so that we can create a relationship with the counselor and start helping them deal with that so they do become a resilient responder or military member. Yeah, you know, for me, mate, it was because what happened to me by two different people or two different men. Um, and what was said 
you know, would be the consequences if I went to a grown-up or a person in authority, police or whatever. It, that seed had already been sowed in my head that, you know, my world was going to go shit. It was going to turn upside down and, you know, all manner of nasty things were going to happen to me and to my family. Um, I don't know, you know, I've, I've only recently spoke about being sexually assaulted. Um, I didn't tell my wife, um, blimey, for over 15 years after we were married. Um, and that only came out because she was um, heavily involved in child protection with the Metropolitan Police. And, you know, we went out one night and one of her new colleagues said something and it just flipped me. And I ended up punching the fuck out of him um, uh, <laughs> at an event. And it all went a bit disastrously wrong. And, you know, me and the wife had a big row and I stormed off and, when she eventually caught up with me a couple of hours later, she was like, what on earth happened now? You know, and that was the first time I told anyone uh, about what had happened to me. I didn't tell her about the football coach. I just told her about the the babysitter because in my eyes, once was enough, you know, um, and she just sat there and was like, well, you know, um, she couldn't believe what I told her and what had happened. Um, and then with the second thing, that came about three and a half years ago. I, I was contacted by an old school friend on Facebook, and it was just that initial, hello, go, how are you doing? Oh, hello, mate, how are you? Blah, blah, blah. He said, any chance we can have a quick chat on the phone? So straight away, I was sort of thinking to myself, I've got a rough idea where this might be going because me and this lad, we grew up together. We went to the same uh, primary and comprehensive schools. We played football together. And when we phoned each other, bearing in mind the last time I spoke to this young bloke then was when I joined the army back in 1985. So we were sort of 17 and a bit, 18 almost. I'd had no contact with him for over... I don't know, nearly 30 years. And he just said to me, do you remember what you said to me at the bus stop? And straight away, I went back to this thing and I said, yeah. Did Charlie ever touch you? And this fella ended up being my mate's um, stepfather. Um, and I found out then, clearly, <clears throat> excuse me, um, that not only it abused me, um, it abused my mate. It abused this child that it had with my mate's wife, uh, mum, sorry. Um, and then the the list, James, just, it's horrific. Um, and he was a prolific, prolific paedophile. Um, and he just carried on through the years. So I have no idea how many victims there are in relation to him. But, you know, it, Again, when I told the wife about that one, uh, it was just a bizarre moment because she she didn't see that one coming. And I suppose at the end of the day, you know, it was a bit of a relief for me to get it off my chest. Um, but again, I think we could both then look at some of my behavioural patterns 
over the years and say, well, that was, as, as you said, because of what happened, you know, very protective, um, very much in people's faces if I felt they were being a bit overbearing. Um, and, you know, looking back on my police career, you know, and my football and being in the military, I was always there for everyone, always trying to put my arm around everyone and protect them because of what happened to me. And I know it gets a little bit cliche and all the rest of it, but I just didn't want anyone else to, I don't know, suffer like I had or go through what I'd experienced. And if I could prevent that from happening, then I would do anything that I could to to make sure it happened, you know. Well, there's nothing cliche about that at all. I mean, it's it's admirable, you know, through pain, you you still want to be the protector. And I think that's why our professions, you know, police, fire, military, we have this a lot because, well, if I'm going to be the protector in the community, what am I going to do? I'm going to be a soldier. I'm going to be a police officer, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that we do see this more than we realize. And what is so powerful, and I just have so much admiration for you and, and so many other people that have come on here and told these raw, raw stories. Just the other day, Manny Vega was telling me he was um, an altar boy and he was one of the voices that brought down that dark side of the Catholic Church a few years ago. But Jeff Thompson, famous bouncer, I used to buy all his books. He came on yeah. here, was abused by his martial arts instructor. That's why he had so much violence in his life. So, yeah. but the solution is exactly what you are doing. If we create an environment in the mental health world for us to reach out when we're struggling, that's the answer to the mental health side. If we create an environment where we normalize that you can say, I was sexually abused, yeah. Imagine what that will do, not only for all the victims that are out there that have kept it boxed down, but the potential victims when someone says to a child, oh, if you tell anyone this is going to happen, yeah. they're like, fuck you. My dad told me, you know, if, yeah. if I'm ever sexually abused, just to come to him. And you just, yeah. you know, you've somewhat disarmed that now, you know. So it's so important, even though it's uncomfortable for people listening, it's a, good. It should be uncomfortable. Yeah. It's a fucking horrible situation that a child was put in so let's normalize this so that we can protect the children of the future and now empower people who have kept this hidden to come out and finally relieve that burden as well rather than stick sure. a gun in their mouth yeah it, you know it's for me sort of talking about it loosely now is a little bit cathartic but then i, I look back on it you know, through my experiences as, as a police officer and some of the horrible stuff that I had to deal with. Um, and like your good self, we normalise what's not normal at all. You know, our normal before going into whichever part of the services we have done, um, you know, is completely different to what our normal is now because our normal will never, ever be that pre-service normal. Um, the stuff we've seen, the stuff we've had to do, the aftermath of those incidents, it never goes away. But we normalise it. And so for me, with the child abuse, um, for, I just try to bury it because for me, I don't know, was it the thing that happened back in my time? Was it a normal thing? Clearly it was in a lot of areas, but we never knew about it. 
but I didn't know that it would have connotations later on in life. You know, when you look back now, uh, it's going a bit extreme, but say the, the men that fought during the, the First World War, you know, and those that couldn't uh, carry on and, and do whatever and were put against the war and shot for shell shock, you know, it, it just beggars belief that that was the mentality. And I think that's why now having the benefit of hindsight, you know, my approach to what we do in, in my organisation um, is it's in your face. We're not blowing smoke up anyone's arse. We're telling you how it is because it's lived experience. And we've had a lot of success during the time that we've delivered our presentation to all manner of our emergency services in the UK and some more of the sort of, um, dare we put it, more technical sides of our emergency services and security services. Um, we're getting a lot of requests now to go in to speak to counterterrorism officers and uh, their associates. And again, you know, people look at trauma and, and trauma is trauma. Um, and it's a very individual thing like me and you. Me and you could go and deal with something that everyone else might be throwing their guts up, looking at me and you elbow deep in bits of their body. Me and you, it's just another day in the office. We're going to have a laugh and joke over a, a beer later on. And if we spoke about it, there'd be a lot of dark humour involved that you and I would get. But to people listening in would be like, what the fuck are them two madmen talking about? How can they talk like that? But it's what we do because that's our normal. I never knew none of this, mate, honestly, until it was too late. Absolutely. So one other area that I just want to touch on very quickly before we progress into the law enforcement career. You mentioned the Falklands, as you were saying, I'm assuming you were deployed after the conflict. Um, we don't hear many voices from the Falklands. I remember when being a young boy, one of the, the, the only real service members we saw, and, I, and forgive me, I forget his name, but one of the, the uh, members of the military was very, very badly burned, and he would be on television quite oh, a Simon bit. Weston, yeah. Simon West, exactly. Um, yeah. So, um, but we don't really hear of that conflict. It's almost like, oh, it was so short. Does it really matter? Does it really, you know, is it valid? So yeah. again, I can imagine that community probably struggled, you know, in silence somewhat. When you were serving, did you come across any service members of that era that you, again, look back now, realize maybe they were trying to deal with some of the horrible shit they saw on that island? Yeah. Um, we, <laughs> during our deployment, Dan, we were down there for six months. So you spend a lot of the time patrolling around the islands because there was still a very strong possibility that the Argies were going to come back and try and take the, the Falkland Islands again. So we were very much uh, on full alert, you know, especially out on patrols. You go out fully laden um, with weaponry and munitions. Um, and, you know, you would come across some of the islanders who would, if you did a bit of work for them, would actually let you sleep in some of their little huts and that rather than that in the and the cold and whatever. And they would tell you stories that, you know, for us it was like, oh, yeah, all right, bit dark, bit interesting. There was a couple of guys up in, we used to do um, what we used to call Top Gun. Um, and basically that was going up and um, guarding the Phantom Jets, 
that they had down in the Falklands then, um, just to you know protect them from a possible you know insertion by you know the bad guys. And there was two pilots who were there who had fought during the conflict, and they were a right pair of characters. Let me tell you. Um, but when you mention certain aspects of the conflict, they would just shut up and they would walk away. Um, so that sort of got my mind thinking. You know, there was veterans in my uh, regiment who had done numerous tours in Northern Ireland and seen and dealt with some pretty bad stuff. Um, they would laugh and joke about it, but then you would get to a point where they would switch off and, you know, that would be that. So we used to think to ourselves, you know, what on earth is wrong with these guys? You know, they're happy talking about things and a little bit of gung-ho stuff. And it reaches a point where it, it suddenly stops. I was very fortunate in the early 90s, still sort of in the military. I come out of the regular army. I joined the um, TA army, um, joined my, again, my old regiment, as it were. Um, and I was very fortunate enough to um, sp spend a lot of time through a connection of mine um, at the Special Forces Club in London, where all the SAS guys would go. Um, and you had a lot of um, guys and, and girls from the Special Operations Executive from the Second World War. And these were, we use the word legend too loosely, I feel, but these people were in their own right legends. Some of the stuff they got up to uh, during the Second World War and after in other conflicts as well was simply stuff that you read about in fiction books. You know, it, absolutely amazing. But again, you got to a certain point where they would switch off or then they'd get really nitty-gritty and give you every blood-curdling second of what they'd done. And I, I don't know. I think the interpretation then was, well... But I never put a connection about the post-traumatic stress side of life until it was my turn. And it wasn't until I got my full diagnosis that everything sort of fell into place. So the build-up from childhood trauma to living your life young, free, and almost carefree to a want, and then facing trauma on a repeated basis it forms the individual that you become at the end of the day, you know. And I, di I honestly didn't see that, uh, as I say, until it was too late for me, you know. So, yeah, but I fully get that now, and, and I fully respect anyone who's struggling. You know, I can really empathise with them. Yeah, well, you take a step back and you look not the pedophiles of the world. It's funny, I've had numerous psychologists and psychiatrists and I put all these different types of person and, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll go back to childhood trauma, except pedophiles. Like you said, there's always that small group that's broken beyond repair. That seems to be the group. That's a biochemistry thing, I think. Um, and so, yeah, let's make an island for them and leave them all there. <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> but, you know, with not only within the military with you know the people that we talked about the other day and we we're on the phone you know people say oh it's it's so and so he's always angry he's salty whatever and my question is this ask his classmates when he got hired was he always a dick because if he was and he's just a dick okay full yeah. stop but if it progressed through their career 
is this actually who they are or is this the job starting to beat them down? And this is obviously a very, very slippery slope to some very horrible things. And the same with the people that we're seeing in our community, whether you're arresting them, whether we're treating them, the homeless men and women, the addicts, the prostitutes, the gangbangers, you can reverse engineer again to things that happen. It may not have been in war. The war may have been in their home, in their bedroom, when their creepy uncle comes to the, the door. You know what I mean? So yeah. we're so quick to pigeonhole and judge. And I've been just as guilty. You know, the angry guy, we'd start pushing their buttons in the station. Now I look back with a totally different lens and a lot of guilt to be like, well, shit, what that person needed actually was compassion, not ridicule. And, I, you know, you've hit the nail on the head there, James. I think, again, through education that we didn't have when we were pre-emergency services or pre-military, it was just life was just life because we didn't have all of the shit we've got around us now in relation to the internet and, you know, we, we can access whatever we want, how we want now. Um, and it seems it's just unstoppable. So... You know, back in our day, we never had mobile phones. So we, we didn't have that instant link to, I don't know, the grim stuff. And if grim stuff was happening to you, as you say, as a child, then the common factor was you never told anyone. Because, A, people are take the piss out of you. It could have dire consequences for you and your family because that was the mindset you were given. You know, and... I couldn't even begin to imagine sitting down in front of my mates in, in the army, especially my battalion, and telling them that I was, you know, fiddled twice um, because I know what they would say and the piss-taking would be relentless. And I'll sit there thinking, you know, why the fuck did I just let all that go? I'm now going to be ridiculed. I'm going to be, um, I don't know, have a lot of different tags associated to me because, you know, I've got – nonced as a kid twice you know it's only now I have to be very careful um, in relation to where we deliver this you know when people say well what was it like you know not happening once but twice and I'll just sort of choose my audience um, but I'll very often I'll just say I'm, I'm very grateful for being at least at one part in my life a very good looking young man a, non a nonce magnet <laughs> yeah <laughs> But now I can do that and I can laugh and joke, you know. Um, but, yes, it's difficult and, you know, it's not until you find yourself in situations later on in life that are very traumatic um, when you're exposed to that, that repeated trauma where, for me, it was it was always bubbling on the surface, but I just couldn't let it go, um, and, you know, and – joining the police, the British Transport Police, as I did, having had a bit of a, a life experience behind me, was great. Um, and I loved it. It was probably, other than being in the forces, the best job I've ever had. It was everything I wanted it to be. It, it was it was exciting. It had its moments. You know, I was involved in some pretty big stuff, you know, just purely by being there. You know, got a lot of skills under my belt. But what I didn't realise was that the negative side of life, i.e. the trauma, and as we spoke about earlier on, yeah, you and I could go down a pub afterwards or sit in the, in the mess, mess room, mess hall and laugh and joke. But 
inside of us, we were broken, you know. And I, I look at stuff now, like you look at Robin Williams, an amazing man in every part of his life, a fantastic actor, what a joker. But inside he was broken. And to a degree, mate, that's us. We put on a brave face for everyone. You know, thankfully, I, I've still got my parents now, and they're both in their mid-80s. And when I told them about the PTSD, they were like, how the fuck? We don't, we didn't see it. You've always been you. You've always been the laugh, the joker, always having sort of social events around yours and just being there for everyone. And I was like, yeah, I know. It was like a good alcoholic. I could hide it. When you all went home, that was when I crumbled, you know, and when no one was around me. I find myself in a corner somewhere, you know, just crying and everything else that we associate with it and all the feelings. But yeah, it was, um, it was something that I didn't see coming. Let's put it that way, mate. Yeah. Well, just a quick tangent. Did you, have you told your mum and dad about what happened when you were a kid as well? No, they still don't know. Okay. Um, I can see that. Would that be haunting? Yeah. And especially that they, they're of an age they are now um they're not in the best of health and you know knowing me mum and dad um it would break them because they had that trust in those people to look after me to look after my brothers and my sister um and i think it would destroy them so you know it's um i've not said it to them i should do <laughs> um you know because you should be able to go to your mum and dad with anything you know, my children know about what happened to me, um, but not in great detail other than it happened to me. Um, and it was a very big contributory factor to my mental health. Um, but thankfully, my, my boys now were of an age, uh, 24, 22 and 17. They sort of understand now why dad was such a dick back in the day. Do you know what I mean? Um, but back in the day, they weren't to know why I was behaving any more than I was to know why I was behaving in a manner that I did. Um, you know, it wasn't until I got that full clinical diagnosis um, that perhaps the penny dropped. Um, and, you know, for us, it was a huge relief because, you know, what happened to us only sort of, well, 10, 11 years ago, um, nearly destroyed everything. Um, but when we got the diagnosis, it was like, okay, let's start building stuff again. Let's start looking at doing better. And as we say to everyone now, you know, especially when we're giving our presentations, just talk, just talk to someone. It's not going to make you any less a person. Um, it's not going to make you any weaker than the, the strong bloke everyone's pictured, pictured you as being. You're human, and that's it. Behind that badge, as you say, you know, we are human beings. We have hearts. Sometimes it doesn't seem that we do in the manner that we deal with stuff. But, yeah, it's, you know, let's not get carried away with it. It's a job, and we do have a life outside of that job. But, unfortunately, that job comes with a lot of um, luggage. Well, one story that you told to Paul um, as you start progressing through your uh, career in the British Transport Police, 
um, was related to what we touched on earlier, which was knife crime. So, um, you know, if it seemed like that was one that really kind of struck with you and struck, excuse me, stuck with you and maybe, you know, shook you in a point that was then going to be amplified. So if you would like to, you know, I'd love to hear that story because it kind um, of mirrors where you found yourself after 7-7 as well. Yeah. So this was um, sort of pre pre seven seven, um, and we were out on some anti robbery patrols on our metro system, and it had been the team that I had were, were all good hard men and women, all good thief takers, and we stood no nonsense. But on this particular day, it had been really quiet to the point where I just said, said to everyone, right, we'll just start heading back to the Nick um, and we'll have our refreshment break and um, we've got any outstanding paperwork, all that sort of stuff. We were approaching a station and the radio went off and it said, um, basically from our controller, um, can anyone attend uh, a stabbing at Upney Station? So it was like, well, we're literally coming into it. So I said, what's the update, you know, Straight away, you, you, you get in your head on your decision-making head and what we need or might need to do. And the response I got was simple. The injured party has declined any medical first aid or assistance. So we're just thinking, oh, you know, it's just, you know, a nothing job. We got off the train. We started walking up the ramp towards the main booking hall and then, we just heard all this chaos, shouting and screaming. Um, and as we started making our way into the main booking hall outside of the station, I literally saw uh, a set of feet pointing skywards and I just thought, well, that's not looking good straight away. And we got out there um, and there was this young goth uh, kid, white kid, um, was clearly dead. But that wasn't my call. Um, so straight away, we're looking for the perpetrator. Uh, we're looking for the, the weapon that might have caused the stab injury because it was quite apparent he'd been stabbed. Um, and I started working on this young kid. Um, and my, my mate who had been, who ended up being my long-term partner, um, in the police, he got straight on the radio, called him for the, um, helicopter to come in due to the serious nature of the injury. Um, and the condition of the young kid. And that was that. We had chaos all around us. And I was working really hard on this kid, you know, doing CPR, chest compressions, trying to plug up the hole in him. Um, and then finally our ambulance service turned up and, you know, I got thrown in the back of the ambulance and carried on working on this kid. And I, I was uh, a response driver, so I could drive on the blue lights and whatever. Um, but being in the back of a, an ambulance was a new experience for me and I got thrown about in the back of that bus. It was ridiculous and all the cupboards were flying open and there was all manner of medical kit just landing on us and, you know, and we're still working on this kid. Um, and the paramedic I was with, he just kept looking at me and I'm like, I oh, know, but we've got to keep going. And he, he said, like, we'll be at the hospital literally in about 30 seconds. Um, we turned up the hospital into the crash unit and I carried on working on this kid and I was blowing out my ass and I was 
a little bit fitter then as opposed to the way I am now. But my God, that was hard. You know, I was soaked in sweat um, and the kid was taken off me. And then through my mind, I've then got to think rationally. I've got a crime scene. I've got to take this ambulance off the run. I've got to get pre-bloods. I've got to get clothing. I've got to get statements. And you've got all this stuff going through your head. But for me, it was just like, that boy has died for what? From one single stab wound. And it wasn't until later on in the investigation that we, we found out that it had been over a girl. A rival gang had the gang leader um, a challenge this young fella for this girl. Um, and he produced a knife outside of the station. Apparently, we missed the fella who stabbed him by about 30 seconds, a minute at the most. Um, and with one stab wound, it went in that sort of far into his body, it severed main arteries, and he was dead before he hit the floor. Um, and when you look at this young kid, and at that point, my boys were young, and all you ever heard in this country at the time was, you know, young black kids stabbing black kids, Asian kids stabbing Asian kids, white kids getting stabbed. It was it was a problem, but nowhere near as prolific as it was in relation to some of the, you know, the other cultures and the ethnic minority groups in this country. Um, and I, I sort of sat in the mortuary with this kid um, waiting for the CID officers to come along um, to take over. And there was a, a body in the fridge above him with my surname on it. And, you know, when you start thinking, hold on a minute, this is like, you know, a bit weird. So when the mortuary attendant come down, and he, he sort of said, do you want a cup of coffee or tea? Or, I said, oh, I'll have a coffee, mate. I said, but can you open the fridge? I just, it's doing my head in. Knowing that this young boy I've worked on is dead. That's my surname up on the fridge above. I just, I need to know. So we opened the door and it, thankfully it wasn't. But I sort of sat there then drinking my coffee, just thinking, why? This never happened when I was 17. You know, and then the following day, we'd, we'd got the perpetrator um, and he was getting, you know, locked up for a, a murder charge eventually. And then you go back out on, on the beat and every time, you know, we stopped someone, we didn't stop them because we could. It was because we knew something wasn't quite right. Um, and a lot of things had changed over here. We had a, a very high-profile murder of a, a young black kid um, called Stephen Lawrence. Um, and, you know, it doesn't matter what, colour you are, who you are, where you're from, any loss of life life is a tragic loss, especially for the family. And, you know, Stephen was only, I think, about 17 um, or 18 when he was murdered. I didn't know him, but he was just another young man whose life was taken by a knife. And it got to a point where we were stopping guys with these Rambo knives, zombie knives, swords and you're like why why have we come to this you know you, you'd be rolling about with young guys on the floor fighting because they try to get away from you because you'd introduce a stop search on them 
And eventually, when you gain control, whether you you know the use of force was either your pepper spray or your baton, or, or I was a taser officer. Um, and then when you got these guys in cuffs, and then you patted them down properly, and you pulled out these weapons, and it just used to blow my mind. I I simply could not get my head around why they would want to carry or need to carry stuff like that. And the simple response from them was always, protect myself. Well, how many other young men are out there protecting themselves? And as we said earlier on, you know, a young kid was stabbed this afternoon not a mile away from where I live. I don't know the extent of his injuries, whether he's died as a, uh, a consequence or what, but really, you know, and then when you've got to go around and deliver that death message and the reaction, and you've seen it in your time, it's just probably the most awful thing you'll ever see and hear and deal with because you've just given that individual or the family the worst news they'll ever receive or message they'll ever receive in their lives, you know, and it's because of what, and it does, it really infuriates me that over here that our police lack the confidence now as a result of the murder of that individual, Stephen Lawrence. His mum went on to become a, a dame and she was very influential in, in relation to certain areas of policing. Um, and it's just continued to take more lives. If, if the police over here now had the backing of their force, of our government, to really enforce a deterrent, then now's the time, you know, I think in London this year alone, it's we've had, I think, somewhere in the region of 60-odd young deaths as a result of knife crime. We never used to have that. Never. Well, that's also you know? 60 young, probably mainly men, boys, yep. who are now going to prison for life as well. So you've destroyed Absolutely. two entire paths of families. Yeah. You know, when you look at criminality, clearly there is, there is the low element, shoplifters, your, your petty thieves and whatever else, and you go to that extreme where the big thing over here at the moment with with gangs, it's almost a rite of passage that you need to stab someone to show that you're capable of, of joining that gang. So a lot of the stab injuries over here, um, people are getting stabbed in the back of the legs or, or in the arse, but they're completely unawares of the, the organs that are in there you know, the blood vessels, the, the main sort of arteries, etc. They're stabbing people and running away, and these people are bleeding out, you know, and for what? To become part of the gang, to wear a, an handkerchief or a neckerchief or have something hanging out your pocket for a little bit of status. No, I just don't get it, mate. No, it's. I mean, it's, really it's so sad. And again, it's like we talked about before. As we are divided, I mean, again, you look at the last two years, I talk about this a lot, whether it's pro or anti-police, whether it's, you know, vaccines or Chinese conspiracy, whatever it is, yeah. you know, this yeah. division is creating pigeonholes. And then these pigeonholes become that negative tribalism where they're like, well, you know, I'm from Barking, I'm going to go fight yeah. everyone in Dagenham. I had it too, growing up in, you know, in, in England, the Southwest, the Chipnam boys and the Caution boys, and I was nothing to do with it because I'm looking on the outside going, you're all fucking idiots because you're going to move one day and now you're not even going to be in that town anymore. Now what the fuck did you yeah. just die for? Nothing, you know. But if those same people have become, 
you know, whatever it is, whatever, you know, a, a, a journeyman carpenter or, you know, something where you have purpose, where you're making the world better, you're not going to be thinking about that bullshit anymore. You're going to be too busy getting on with your life, you know, and that's Absolutely. really sad. And we've all seen them, you know, you go and, and you see the guys that are now 35 or 40 and they're still doing that shit, you know, yeah. and it's like, oh my God. So, yeah, I mean, that's why I think mentorship is so important. As you said, there's a lot of shit talking on the younger communities, usually by obese men that are fucking drains of society themselves, rather than <laughs> yeah. actually stepping outside yeah. your front door, finding a group, whether you're a, you know, a football coach or a firefighter or whatever, and just finding some people and giving them a path, you know, helping prepare Absolutely. for the fire service or, you know, whatever it is. And I think that is the answer. This yapping, this tweeting or twatting, whatever the fuck it's called, doesn't change anything at all. But if you actually go out there and make your household better and then do something yeah. in your community, if we all did that, we would see change because as you said, it doesn't matter if it's a gun or a knife or a stick, you know, it, it's the violence and the mental ill health behind it that's driving yeah. all this, this sadness. Yeah. And it, it is so destructive. You know, I worry about my boys, you know, especially my youngest lad is at college. Um, he's clearly finding girls now and, you know, staying out later and later. And, but I'm still sitting up, you know, waiting for my 17 year old boy to come home because I need him to come home. I need to know that he's at home as opposed to that young kid that was stabbed today. You know, um, my other two boys, um, they're both in relationships and whatever, but as they were growing up, they, they didn't have any interest in sport, which I found quite devastating. You know, my middle boy tried football, didn't like it. He tried rugby, didn't really like it, but it was all right. But my oldest lad's a musician, he's a guitarist, your middle boy is a drummer. Um, so they found their sort of way, you know, getting themselves into bands and playing, you know, gigs. So for me, fantastic. I love my music um, and I love watching my boys when they were playing in bands play, you know. But it was just comforting to know that they weren't hanging about out on street corners or in a sort of, dare I say, wrong groups. Absolutely. Well, we obviously touched on 7-7. You're in the British Transport Police. We have a horrendous attack in London in um, 2005 that is aimed at that very system. It's on our buses, it's on yeah. our subways, or our undergrounds. So kind of walk me through. You touched on this with Paul, like there were, there were some perceived threats. So if you wouldn't mind, what were some of the things that you were hearing? And then kind of walk me through to that day and beyond. So we... For, I don't know whether it was coincidence or it, it was obviously a good bit of planning. Um, we got together a newly formed anti-terrorism team. But like most forces, um, whether it be the military or our emergency services or whatever, we are very poor at sharing information because we like to hold on to it because we want the, the guys to get the bad guys. You know, we want to be the ones that stick out, you know, the score. And we... We knew something was happening, and as I say, we was part of this new anti-terrorism team um, that was going to go out and patrol the, our underground stroke metro system. Um, but my wife was heavily pregnant with our third son, um, and she was still serving in the Metropolitan Police. Um, and we'd heard that, you know, there was potentially going to be an attack. The, the security threat had gone up. 
we knew something was imminent, but like most acts of terrorism, you've got to be very lucky to be there at the right time, at the right place to sort of prevent it from happening. So what my wife had done um, with our other two boys, she had gone to work and actually on the day they were due, she was at work and then she went into labour um, or the day before she went into labour and, and, you know, we went through that procedure of hospital, yada, yada, yada. Excuse me, but thankfully, my youngest boy came about three days early, I think. So on the day of 7-7, um, I was actually buying some nappies and my phone went and it was the wife and she went, have you heard what's just happened on the underground? And I was like, are you sure I'm buying nappies? I'm not near the radio. She went, oh, there's been a big power surge. So and I'll find you back in a minute. So I found one of the lads up um, and he went, get your kit, we've just been bombed. And I was like, you're fucking kidding me. He went, stand by, we've just been bombed again. And I was like, well, there is no way I'm going to be able to get into London, A, because the network's going to be down. It's going to be chaos on the roads. And from my house to get into to London, there's only about 40 minutes in the car on a good run. Um and but there was no way I was going to get in there because all the traffic was stacking up. Um, and I said to me, mate, right, I'll do my best to get in tomorrow. So, and all right, I said, but keep me posted as and when you can. So I got home, and ironically, what went through my head at that point was, you know, certain events you remember where you were. So when nine eleven happened. I was actually doing some filming on the bill over in South London. And we was in an old pub over in Bermondsey. And the landlady, she was on the phone to someone. We were just having a brew in one of the, uh, was in the saloon bar. And then one of the guys come in and said, you know, the Twin Towers have just been hit. And we was like, oh, yeah, go on. What's that? Stocks are going to come crashing down there, you know, and all the stupid things that you say. He went, no, fucking look at this. And we were watching the news as it was happening. And then I just heard this gut-wrenching scream from the lady who was on the phone. She was watching the TV and talking to her son who was in the building in one of the trade centres. Oh, God. Yeah. And what went through my head at that point of taking the phone call from me, mate, was, fuck, how many people were doing exactly that? So I got into work the following day, lots going on. I've got two little boys at home, a brand new baby, and being in the protective sort of state that I was, everything was heightened. I spent a couple of days at Charing Cross, which was like a main hub station, underground station, and we had a couple of incidents there where someone got into the tannoy system and announced to an almost full-to-capacity underground station that the next incoming train had a bomb on it. And we're all now trying to look at where the tannoy is to see if we can see the individual. Because there's only members of staff or some police officer keys to, you know, use that equipment in case of an emergency. And it was just panic. I mean, it, I've never felt – I can't even describe how I felt. It was just incredible. And I said to all my guys on my team, when this train comes in, when them doors open, do not let anyone off. And you get in there 
and you shout as loud as you can for anyone and everyone if they've got any luggage with them to pick it up and identify it. And you know what? Everyone did it. There must have been a thousand odd plus people on these train carriages. People on the platforms were just stood perfectly still, perfectly quiet because the realization that it could be us, you know. Uh, and thankfully, it didn't happen. But about an hour or so later, it happened again. And we couldn't see, we couldn't find anyone on the CCTV. Um, so we couldn't identify that individual. So, you know, your head's full of stuff and images and you're not very good. You know, bearing in mind, I dealt with quite a lot of suicides on the on the railway at that point. So, you know, all those images were starting to creep back in. And then my boss just come up and he said, um, well, I need you to go down to the temporary mortuary. I was like, well, well why is that? He said, you're ex-military. So I like, yeah, fucking years ago. I mean, you know, a long time ago. And I said, anyway, what I've heard is that you have to be a sergeant to go down there because of the nature of the stuff they're dealing with. Um, and, you know, people were, were just falling over. It was horrific down there. And he just put his hand in his pocket, put a set of stripes on my shoulder, congratulated me on my promotion, and said, right now, fucking disappear. Jesus, that's going to be the worst promotion story I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. For once, I actually was begging for a bit of academia once <laughs> to do a test, you know. <laughs> um, and, yeah, so I made my way down to the mortuary, and it was like very early stages of being put together. It was like day three, day three, day four post-event. Um, so I was introduced to the men and women in there and my team, and we had um, the bare basics. So we had um, a load of marquees set up. Um, you had some incredibly professional men and women in there um, from our national health services, you know, dentistry. Um, it was quite a fine-tuned machine, for want of a better word. You know, and body parts were starting to come in and bodies um, and we, um, one of the guys that was leading our team, um, or overseeing our team, he was uh, a Met Police officer, he was a, a sergeant who was part of the um, UK stroke global DVI teams. So DVI, disaster victim identification. So these men and women would get sent around the world to natural disasters, um, and they'd not long come back from the aftermath of the Boxing Day tsunami. So they were still very fresh, dare I say, in all of that bad, bad stuff. Um, we're now dealing with a massive terrorist attack on the UK mainland. Um, and this, this skipper, and we end up becoming good mates, he said, right, let's get, get your kit on. So we got all the white kit on and double gloved and double this, double that. And we've gone into this room um, and there was a body bag in there. So we went through the sort of formal procedures of identifying the individual along with the, the booklets that come with them, these DVI books or, or the Interpol books. Um, and I put a lot of safeguarding in for myself. I didn't want to know who these individuals were. They were just, unfortunately, a set of numbers that followed that book, that followed that person around because it would get too personal. 
Um, and we opened the bag, and I can only describe what I saw as being like a very cold stew. There was lots of liquid with bits of meat in there. Um, and as you can imagine, the the blast injuries were quite extensive. Um, the decomposition, because we had a very hot summer then, and these bodies had been down the tunnels for three or four days, was quite rapid. Um, so we we opened the bag, and this, this fellow looked at me, and he went, remember, you don't have to stay in here. You don't have to do this. You can just walk out. And I just looked at the other lad who was with me, and I was like, well, and this is where the old dark humour crept in again. I said, we're going to need a, need a lot of bread to mop up the soup in here, aren't we? So one of a better word. And we all started laughing. It was all a bit uncomfortable because the smell and what we were looking at was just like nothing I've ever experienced. Um, and we got on. And again, going back to what we said earlier on, we were normalising something that was quite clearly not normal. Um, and that's how it went for a number of weeks. And we were getting lambasted in the in the press by certain bodies of our community because it seemed that we were taking far too long to identify some groups as opposed to, to others. And we weren't. It was just the process. If you can imagine, and I don't know if you've experienced it, we were opening some of the body bags and we're starting to go through that process of, you know, taking bits and pieces away to, you know, identify this individual. Then you would find parts of another person embedded into that person, which creates another story, another time-consuming investigation. Um, so it was hard and we had to get it right. And, you know, from our point of view, we needed to treat every one of those victims with absolute dignity. You know, these, these poor men and women had gone to work that day and were blown to pieces. Um, and it was, it was hard. Um, and one day we, um, one of my jobs, I took this other young kid through. I didn't know at the time he was like, uh, the youngest victim or one of the very youngest victims. Um, and one of the mortuary assistants just said to me, she went, oh, Sarge, and straight away, the airs went up on the back of my neck, and I'm sort of like, why are you, you calling me that? It's normally Gary or the nickname. And she went, oh, this is really sad. And I, and I sort of said, well, look, they're all sad. She went, no, um, his dad's coming to view. He's just lost his wife to, to cancer, and that was his only child. And I remember stopping almost... I don't know, for a moment, it was like I was getting some sort of electric shock still in that corridor because I just all of a sudden was overwhelmed with, with guilt and, you know, knowing that I was going home to my new baby um, and my other two boys. And um, so I took the young fella in into this, like, um, sort of family viewing area. They've made, like, a... Uh, little funeral sort of parlour restaurant and the the flow which is like the the family liaison officer who was looking after this gentleman he came around and he just sort of said all right gal um you know dad's come to view is there anything i should know and i sort of give him as best a descriptive as i could 
um, and advised against doing certain things, you know, but we couldn't stop families from, you know, some families because of their religious beliefs or whatever would want to see the, the body naked and would want to clean the body, but, you know, how do you clean a bag of soup? Um, and so he went back and he, he said, oh, I'll give you a shat. So I just waited outside the room and it seemed to be over within minutes, but he must have been in there about 10, 15 minutes. And then the flow come out and he just said, um, Gal, can you just say thanks to the team um, from Dad? And he's sort of like, okay, yeah. Um, and I went back into the room and what I used to do was get the flowers and any sort of um, bereavement cards or whatever or any items a family wanted left for their loved one. Um, I put it into the body bag and, you know, zip them up and, and take them back and, and move on to the next job. But I don't know why um, I, I caught sight of what this um, this gentleman had written on this card. For his son, Helen. I've never experienced that before in life. And I just felt so awful. And I sort of broke all the rules. <clears throat> and I left the body unattended, even though it was in a secure location. Um, and I had to go outside another minute for myself because I just couldn't get through my, that I was going home to my, my little boy. And my other two kids, and you know, this, this man was going on to nothing. And um, I went back in the room, and it was like my own son was in there. And it was just the most difficult thing. And I came out, um, and I took him back, and some of the other team could see that you know, obviously I was really upset, and we'd been working really long hours. I mean, we was working 14, 15 hours some days. And then I was going home on the system, on the underground system, listening to Joe Bloggs and his mates all moaning about a fucking system being fucked and how they couldn't get to work and, you know, how it was stopping them, oh, excuse me, from going down the pub or whatever. And I was just thinking to myself, if you could spend a couple of seconds doing what I've done and what my colleagues have been doing all day, you know, it might change your mind, but I, I didn't realise that that was then going to be the start of um, my, um, I'm not going to say rapid demise, but my mental health really went down the toilet then. Um, we never got any um, any help from the job. <clears throat> um, we didn't get a... A debrief until some seven weeks after we'd collapsed a mortuary and I was there for nearly two months and we yeah, it was just an off the cuff cuff remark that oh we better debrief everyone um, so they sent us to a hotel in London in central London and um, you know everything was still really quite raw and you know we'd gone back to normal in relation to dealing with stabbings, the odd shooting, suicide on the railway. Um, but clearly what we've been doing for the last two months was very much at the forefront of 
the way we sort of worked and, and thought. And we, we went to this debrief and I felt so sorry for this woman. There must have been 40, 50 coppers in this room. And she sort of come in and um, she all she needed was some joysticks and a beanbag. And it was like, <laughs> I don't know. It was Hippieville, you know what I mean? And she started talking, bless her. And I, you know, <laughs> I sort of said to her, like, excuse me, I said, like, I'm Gary from such and such station. Um, is this going to be done on an individual basis or are we having a bit of a, you know, happy clappy moment? And she went, oh, no, it's, it's all sort of going to be happy clappy and we're all going to talk together. And I said, oh, fuck that. And I got up and she went, where are you going? I said, uh, I'm going to debrief my team down the pub. And that's exactly what we did. So I got up and my team and other men and women from other teams just got up and went, ah, this is wrong. Um, and we went down a pub and got duly pissed. Um, at the end of that event, the guy who was then running the Metropolitan Police's Counterterrorism Command um, got everyone together. And this was very much the ethos of the day for a debrief. And the debrief was there's a pub in Shoreditch, uh, not Shoreditch, um, where was it? It was just down the road from the Honourable Artillery Company. And they said, basically, you are not to leave that place until there is no alcohol and no food left in that building. All right. And that's exactly what we did. We went through a lot of plague of rats, got full up, got pissed, went on index. But what was to follow that, I would suggest not only for me because, you know, my story is, is a nothing story compared to others, but there was no help for us. And I was too proud to reach out uh, and ask for help because, again, of all the, I don't know, all the stigmas we attached to mental health, especially our own, you know, I was that go-to bloke. Everyone would come in, oh, Gaz will sort this out, or if we're in a, a public order situation where you've got to get, dare we say, quite close and uncomfortable with certain individuals, I'd be the first one in there. Um, but what I didn't know, yes, I was doing that, but I was now actually looking to go and do that. You know, especially on Saturdays with football jobs, we used to travel up and down the system with our hooligans. And for me, if I wasn't burying my head in beer to stop the flashbacks and nightmares, the only other way I felt that I was moving stuff and getting rid of this image of this kid on this gurney was to pick a fight with someone. Um, and that's what I did. You know, and I was putting my wife and my kids through a misery. You know, I, I wasn't physically abusive to my, my wife and children, but verbally, you know, one of my boys farted. I would be all over him like a bad suit, you know. I find it extremely funny if someone farts. Always have done. But for some reason, if one of my kids breathed out of, I'd done a natural sequence of something or, you know, did something, I'd go mad. And my wife said it to me when we was actually in Florida. Um, we were going down to um, look at the alligators down in the Keys somewhere. And the, the hire car that we had, we broke down. I had all manner of dramas trying to get hold of the, the company to come out and get the car going or bring us another vehicle. And thankfully, we'd broken down um, not too far away from where this alligator place was. 
um, in like um, one of those um, like gated communities. So as I'm on the high street, I've managed to get the car into a little bit into this estate where I could both see the vehicle and the wife and the kids, but could also wait and see if, you know, the emergency services were coming or the hire company were coming. And this, I started, I don't know what it was, I started seeing cars that were just driving up and down slowly, some with, you know, clearly young gang members in. They'd spotted a tourist car. Um, and, again, I was just hypervigilant, and I didn't know the reason why, but it was because of my PTSD. And his car stopped, and it was about 60 metres away from where I was, and it had a couple of young guys in there. And one of them was talking to the wife. And to, to me, the other fella seemed to be eyeing the car up. Well, I went running over there like a man possessed. And the young fella in the passenger seat, he said something to the driver, and, and they'd gone off in a puff of smoke. And the wife just went to me, what the fuck are you doing? They was trying to help. And I just went, no, they weren't. They was going to rob you and da-da-da-da. They were clearly trying to help her. But I just went into this overprotective mode and, you know, again, I couldn't put my finger on why I was behaving more like that than I usually was. Um, and I eventually got involved in something off-duty in 2012. Was part of the, I was part of a specialist search team during the Olympics over at uh, Stratford in East London. And I came home having done a 12-hour shift looking for IEDs and component parts and whatever else Mr. Terrorist like to try and blow us up with. Um, and my lad wanted to go, my middle son wanted to go to their local shops. I was like, yeah, okay then. Um, so we went up there and this incident just happened and I couldn't do anything other than call the job in. Um, the golden rule over here is don't ever get involved in something off duty because it will go tits up. It will go horribly wrong. And invariably, that's exactly what happened with this incident. Um, it got to a point where I'm rolling about on the edge of a platform with this individual, uh, with trains coming in. My middle boy is screaming and shouting because all he can see is his dad fighting with a man who's clearly going to end up on the train track and get squashed by a train. In my mind's eye, when I saw my boy behaving like that, you know, I punched this individual. He just tried to throw two young Metropolitan Police officers onto this said track. Um, I just fought straight away back to the mortuary and uh, um, this young fella's dad was feeling and thinking and all I could see in my son's eyes was probably what I had imagined this gentleman had been like. Um, we ended up locking up this bloke. It took five uniform officers to escort him out of the station because he was that smashed on drugs and, and drink. And then sort of 17 months after that event, I find myself at Crown Court facing a, an ABH offence, which is like an actual bodily harm offence because I punched this guy and he'd received injuries. What I didn't know was that, yes, clearly I'd caught some injury to his face, but he was a prolific self-harmer and smashed his head to pieces in the back of the police van, which had been recorded. Um, and when the evidence was given in court, um, this came out. Um, but you, you're judged by your peers 
And, um, you know, again, I had an exemplary record from the police, numerous commendations um, for, you know, some good work, including that of what we did during the, the aftermath of the bombings from our chief constable. Um, and I was found guilty of the offence. And I had to um, hand me warrant card in. I was then suspended until I was due to go back to sentence or for sentencing in January of 2014. So the judge, in fairness to him, he guided the jury twice uh, to a not guilty verdict. And rather than send me to prison there and then, um, he sent me away for pre-sentencing reports. And he sent me to the then top forensic shrink in the country who just after three and a half hours, uh, done his report. And on the day, he just simply said that my behaviour was extremely out of character um, and was as a result of the PTSD that I had. There was no other reason for it. Um, and again, it's not until you hear that, that you, I don't know, to a point you realise your own mortality and you think about stuff, you know, just digressing a little bit. We had an incident just the Christmas before um, where we were dealing with an elderly lady, uh, a station in East London in Ilford. I don't know if you remember Ilford at all. Yeah, I used to date a girl yeah. in uh, Barking, so yeah. Did you really? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we, we were dealing with this old lady um, and this gentleman came up to us in a quite – a splendid suit and, you know, and he said, I just want to say, fellas, thanks very much for what you're doing. I really appreciate it. And because you don't get that in East London, or very rarely, me and my mate just looked at him and just carried on helping this old girl get back on her feet. And he went, seriously? He said, I, I want to say thank you. So I stood up and I was like, okay then. Shook his hand. Merry Christmas, mate, and thanks very much for your kind words. It, it does actually mean a lot. We walked up the stairs to go to our vehicle and we heard this almighty bang. And we're just like that, surely not. And one of our young probation officers come over. He went, oh, Sarge, so I think we've got a one under. So as I turned around to walk back down the stairs, it was somewhat like an abattoir that needed cleaning up. And I went and looked at the CCTV, and it was this fella. And I had to get down and, you know, pick up what was left of him and identify him and, all the rest of it, we'd found he left all his stuff on a, on a bench, but it was left like most other people who go and commit that tragic act. They'd left everything in a tidy, neat pile that was accessible, found out who he was, went and delivered the, the message to his family. It's like three days before Christmas. And, you know, ironically, when the door was open, I'd heard these kids running down this sort of wooden floor to the door. He lived on a real nice estate. Um, and it was that scenario where the kid who opened the door was about the same age as my oldest lad at the time. Would have been about, I don't know, 12, something like that, 13. His little brother that was behind them was about my middle boy's age. And then their little sister was probably just a little bit younger than my youngest lad at the time. And, you know, I explained as best I could what happened to mum. I'd identified a, a photograph in the, in the hallway of a, uh, as a family snap of all them together on a, a family holiday 
which looked very much like they'd not long been back from. And then she said to me, can you tell the kids what's happened? You know, and I'm in her front room, Christmas tree, presents, lights, and just thinking, I can't. I really, I can't do it. I don't know how I'm going to do it. Because all I had in my head then, again, was this young kid at the mortuary. Um, and I sort of sat down with the kids in the kitchen. Um, and I did my best to tell them, you know, without being too descriptive what had happened. And, uh, you know, dad wasn't coming home. And to leave them kids in the company of other family members eventually and their neighbours was just rotten. And I walked out and the wife said to me, can you tell his mum? She lives around the corner. She was like, oh, okay. Um, Now, bearing in mind, I'd done this, I'd lost count how many times I've had to deliver that most awful message. You know, and nine times out of ten, having dealt with the deceased as well. So you do have a bit of a personal uh, attachment to it. Um, and I got in my police car, drove around the corner and got out. And because it was like a gated community, seeing a police car on their very posh estate, very well at his estate, you know, curtains are twitching and whatever. So I get me cap out of the car and I'm just closing the door and then I could hear all this shouting and I looked up and it was his mum screaming and swearing at me from her bedroom window and it was my fault that her son was dead. I'd killed him. I hadn't taken care of him. And again, as I'm walking up the path to her front door, all I could think of was all those, not only the victims of the London bombings, but every other suicide that I dealt with. And I actually started feeling quite sick and I really didn't want to knock on the door. Well, thankfully, I didn't have to knock on the door because she opened it and she came out of that door like an Exocet missile and punched me square in the chest. It actually rocked me back on me on my heels. And then she went back in screaming and shouting. And I remember opening a letterbox, saying, oh, look, I'm really sorry for your loss. Your daughter-in-law's got all of that information if you need to speak to us. Now, when I went back to the court for sentencing. As the judge is reading there, obviously my find or the jury's findings of guilt. You know when you just think to yourself, all that hard work, all that death, snot, broken bodies, people that survived, and this is the thanks I'm getting for it. You know, I was looking to go to prison. Um and my life sort of went in slow motion because it just didn't seem real. And the judge just went right. He says, uh, as a result of ABC, this is the following. You're getting six months suspended jail for a year. So basically that means if I've got in trouble, I'll go straight to jail. I had to pay the complainant £1,500 there and then in compensation. And I got something like 103 or 105 hours community service. None of that sunk in. You know, I was glad that I wasn't going to prison because that would have been difficult for a, a former police officer. Um, but my world had just come to a, a shitty stop there and then. Um, and you think, I've tried to do my best looking out for everyone um, and, you know, doing what I can to help everyone. And this is my reward. Um, 
I went out on the piss, to be fair, after that. with All my mates had come to the court with us and some senior officers as well. Um, we were all good pals and, I, you know, I was suspended from that point. Um, and we got levered. I mean, we had a right good drink up and I got home and, you know, I'd already spoke to the wife and the children and explained to them in an uncertain term that when I leave home or left home that morning, there was a good chance I wasn't coming back for a very long time. Um, so the following morning, I sort of got up and tried to evaluate everything. And clearly, my mental health was probably in its darkest place. Um, that first day at home after sentencing, I don't remember much of it. But what I remember doing is the following morning, um, got up, I took the kids to school, and then I got back in my car to go and kill myself. And it wasn't anything that I'd, um, I'd planned. I just thought, you know, this is, this is the only way I can deal with this now. You know, I've brought a lot of shame on my family. My wife's still serving police officer. She's got to disclose now that I've, now got a criminal record. You know, the feeling of shame, the worthlessness, every every descriptive you can think of in a negative way. I just overloaded myself with it. And for me, the only way that I could deal with this was just to become another victim of suicide. Um, because by doing that, I've taken the burden off of everyone. I wouldn't feel how I was feeling. And I went to a place where I picked up a lot of, unfortunately, people that take their own lives because, you know, this place clearly worked. And I remember looking down the train track and the train was in the distance and it was a fast one out of Liverpool Street going towards South End down at the coast. Um, and I just, I've never felt so contented or happy. Um, and I, I suppose a, a feeling of like relief because I knew within 20 seconds it was all going to be over. Um, and I just stood up and just accepted I, that's what I was going to do. Um, I had no thought for anyone else or any of my colleagues that were going to have to come and pick me up or bits of me up and whatever, the, the poor train driver. And... Um, the train got upon me, um, and rather than take that half a pace forward, I don't know why, I just fell back on my ass again as the train went hurtling past me. Um, and I just sat on this embankment beyond broken. Uh, hopefully I will never, ever experience that again because um, it's just weird. And then you go through all the other emotions of, you selfish twat. If I'd have done that, you know, my kids would wake up every day without their dad. Um, my wife, my friends, my family. And, it, you know, when you break it down into its real basic component parts, it's because I was too proud to talk to anyone. Um, and that's all it is. It's a encourage especially men uh, in our emergency services to to talk you know just to get something off their chest 
it's going to help. And I never believed that. You know, I was grown up or brought up in that thing of grow a pair and, you know, stick your chest out and get on with it. Um, but it's, you know, I look at it now in a completely different way. And when we give our presentations now, you know, we have people on a proper roller coaster ride. I've got to say, it's like being down in Florida at Disney or wherever else. You jump on that roller coaster and off you go. And it's, it's a ride where we've got people laughing, crying, trying not to laugh, open mouthed, and then back to like, well, but they've all experienced something quite similar, but have not had, dare I say, the empowerment to stand up and go, I'm fucked. I can't deal with another bit of dead body. I can't deliver another death message. You know, I can't have another fight with someone. I'm I'm just done. I'm spent. And I wish I'd had that confidence that I have now in talking about my mental health and where it took me and the possible consequences back in the day because I'm not suggesting that I'd still be a police officer now, but mentally I might be in a, a much better place. You know, and I'm... I'm a lot better than I was. I still had my moments, don't get me wrong. I still had my flashbacks and my nightmares and the odd days where it's like, you know, I can't crack on. But you do. You recognise your triggers and you learn to manage them and, and you get on with it. You know, it is, it's hard work on, on our part to accept that the big, strong cavemen that we are or we, we perceive ourselves to be were anything other than that, you know. And, and that's what we just try and install to people. You know, talk. Well, again, thank you for for sharing that. A um, couple of things that really jumped out at me. Firstly, when people get to the point where they're truly able to take their own life, it's not ever one thing. And I think that's a problem. You know, the the solution is always like, oh, well, it's you know, as we talked about before, it's what you saw on Seven Seven. It's because you were in the Falklands. It was whatever. But it's this compounding element, this perfect storm of all these little layers. Well, as we walk through, you know, your life story, the last couple of hours, you know, you've got horrendous multiple childhood trauma. You've got obviously, you know, the, the military element. You've got the sleep deprivation in, in the professions themselves. You know, you've got so many areas, but then the big one, which I think again is another real elephant in the room is organizational betrayal. Now, in this case, it wasn't your actual agency. It was more the judicial system of this country um, itself. Yeah. Uh, to be fair, my, my, um, my employer contributed very heavily towards my demise. Okay. Um, well, there you go. To be fair. And, and again, this is a sad reality of where we are. You often hear this, you know, we, we spoke about, uh, Danny Cotton earlier on and what happened to her. You know, I didn't need Grenfell Tower to happen for me. The fact that I got involved with something off duty an individual that I was dealing with had a list or had a list of criminality that was from the most minor of offences to burglary, robbery. It was not a pleasant individual. And yet, because you get judged by your peers, because of a certain elements of my senior management team that didn't like me because I was a firm, allegedly, so I've been told I was firm but fair in my policing style, as was my partner with me. And we used to get lots of bloody good results, you know. Um, we were a, a, a prominent pair of thief takers, but we 
probably took home just as many individuals in our police vehicle and told them to stop being such dicks <laughs> and get indoors. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was just the way that it was. Um, but, you know, there's certain individuals that don't like you um, and they compounded what was a, I'm not going to say a simple event. It obviously had its issues, but, you know, when, let's put it this way, in the UK, if someone comes to you to report a crime, whatever the nature of the crime, you have six months, really, which is your given window to investigate the crime and determine an outcome, whether it be through the, the law courts or no further action. My job pursued the alleged uh, victim for over seven months to get a statement from him. I heard, and I believe it to be true, that actually almost bullied him into giving a statement against me. Now, just to he be clear, said, he had tried to throw two police officers onto the tracks on the station. Well, train track, yeah. Okay. And, and wanted to fight me as well. Um, and he had actually said in Crown Court, in answer to a question from the judge, from the Crown Court judge, well, you expect a, a slap from the old Bill now and again. So that really, and then that brief sentence really did give a descriptive of the individual that he was and the life that he was leading. But, you know, we don't pick the jurors. <laughs> and often the jurors will take great delight in giving you a negative result. And that was, you know, the way it went for me. Um, but I'm just glad now, mate, that we're helping and we have helped so many firefighters, police officers, paramedics, our you know, um, are in our life, our life, both men and women, by giving our presentation to them and making them aware of their own mental health and well-being. You know, and my my hope is that one day we could have something like PTSD nine 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 in the states. You know, PTSD nine one one. It's we're all doing the same, and I know there's groups within your country that do this, and you look after your veterans in an amazing way. Um, it's a shame that we don't reflect that over here. So that, at some stage, you know, I'd really like to, once we become a full-blown charity, um, I would like to really try and get this out across the globe, you know, just make people aware that there are people there that are prepared to listen and prepared to help because, you know, we've had a, a, a wave of suicide in the Metropolitan Police in recent months, um, along with the Fire and Ambulance Service too. Um, and one life lost is one too many, you know, because they've not been able to reach out and help or get the help they needed, which is so sad. You know, PTSD over here, I just liken it to when we had, if you remember back in the 80s, clearly you will remember this, when AIDS first came about. Yeah, yeah, it scared Um, the hell out of me, and I was about eight at the time. I thought I was going to get it. Yeah, and that, that was what we were told, weren't we? You know, you can't be in a room that's got homosexuals in or gay people in, you can't touch them, you can't do this, you can't do that. And we've attached all of those stigmas to, to mental health in general. And we've made people so frightened in expressing how they're feeling. You know, the calls and emails that I take, James, are probably no different from what you experience on the calls and people you talk to. It's shocking. There is no help out there. And the worst thing is that people simply don't trust their employer. How sad is that when you can't trust the people that employed you to go and do your job? 
No, exactly. And that's where that organizational betrayal is, you know, it's such a, an amplifier of what's already going on. I want to just hit one thing because I want to walk you through your journey out and then into the nonprofit now. But it's, I think it's a very important story. I've had people on here that have been very close taking their own lives and, and a, a child has called them or, you know, someone happened to show up at the right time. And I've had some people that have, you know, actually um, completed the, the attempt, but they survived where they jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge or they shot themselves. Wow. Um, and there are some just like resounding realities that come out of these hundreds of conversations of course there's an element that people want the suffering to end the pain to end i mean that's just you know totally understandable whether you're it's a mental problem or whether you're dying of cancer you know the that side but the old school stigma way of looking at suicide and you kind of touched on it is it's cowardly it's selfish you know how could you do that to your family what I'm realizing now is at that moment when people are truly at peace, when it's in you know, your fight, flight or freeze and then flow, it's that freeze state, that acceptance, that deer is just, all right, I'm going to get nailed by this car. It is what it is. That's where almost, you know, there's that, you know, that um, acceptance with this is what I'm going to do. But I don't think the people understand the real red flag in this whole conversation is if you are so... If your brain is so miswired that you believe you are a burden to your loved ones, that is what all the the, the mental health posters need to say. Because yeah. the and what's interesting with you is you were almost there, and then your brain like a wire reattached again, and you fell back, and you were like, that would have been selfish. Absolutely, it would to kill yourself, you know. But the people at the time they're not thinking it that way they're like i am the cause for all the pain for my family i'm angry all the time i slap my wife i cheated on you know whatever i did if i just take myself from this equation and i'm in a profession where i put other people's lives ahead of mine anyway then everything will be fixed so i think that was such a powerful moment that you had and thank god it ended up the way you did but your brain almost tricked you into believing that did you have that kind of burden thought yourself right prior to, to falling back? Do you know what? It's, it's hard to explain. So a couple of months ago, um, we had a funeral of a, a close friend of ours who used to raise a lot of money for our little organisation. Um, and he was, like myself, liked his rock music. Um, one of our patrons is a guy called Dennis Stratton. And Dennis was one of the founding members of Iron Maiden. Back in the early days, he played on the first two albums and whatever. Um, and I remember going to watch Dennis play when I was a young bloke and whatever. Um, over the last 10 odd years, 15 years, I think, we've got a friendship so much so that we're really good pals. And, you know, Dennis is a patron to our organization. He did a, a music video with my boys and my nephew in it. Uh, they did a cover of David Bowie's Heroes. Um, and hopefully it's on my sort of Facebook page, um, and I think it's great. But this lad I'm talking about, he was an ex-military man. He was in uh, our prison service as a prison officer. He was with Dennis on a Saturday night and helped Dennis pack all his kit away, and they'd arranged to meet the following day um, for a beer. Um, Dennis found me Sunday morning on that day, broken, and said that, our mate Baz had hung himself. There was no indication. There was nothing. And as I say, Baz, 
was an amazing man. Um, we had over 500 people turn up to his funeral. Uh, we had a little fundraiser the other month. Um, and his partner came up to me and said, I, I knew he was struggling, but I didn't know how bad. And I'd always said to Baz, if things really get shitty, mate, we can talk to each other because I've been there. And he was like, yeah, yeah. He said, I, he said no, I won't ever go where you went. And I said, yeah, but I said that. And we both laughed and joked about it. And there is, at that moment, and I can't speak for Baz because he ain't here, bless him. Um, but when that train was coming towards me, for me personally, I just thought everything was going to be all right. I didn't think that the knock-on effects of my demise or the impact it would have on my wife and children and my friends and colleagues, I was just relieved. I don't know if that's the right word, that it was all about to, to stop. I couldn't carry on drinking the way that I was. I couldn't end up, or I couldn't continue having these moments of absolute panic or anger or or whatever. I, I just, I was broken. And Dennis, even now, and I'll be seeing Dennis on this, this weekend, he will still talk about Baz and why he did it and he doesn't understand. And I have to just keep reinforcing that he did it because that was that. None of us could have stopped it. Irrespective of how close we were, how much we thought we understood that person. There's a big difference from those that leave suicide notes that invariably don't take or commit the act. So, so those that just get up and go and do it. And I think, ironically, I, I don't know if you've ever spoke to the individual, there's a chap who he jumps off the Golden Gate Bridge and he says that as he leapt off the bridge, he thought, fuck, I don't want to die. Yeah, Kevin Hayes. <laughs> yeah, he was mid-flight. And you just think, well... And thankfully he survived. But, you know, for me, all I could see was that train getting closer to me and I could actually see the driver and then the look on the driver's face and I just was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm happy now. And that was it. And then the next thing I remember was the train rushing past me and I'm on my ass in the wet grass, crying my eyes out, just thinking, you know, what the fuck? <laughs> How did I get here? You know, seriously, what on earth? What was I thinking of? And I, I, I don't know. I never planned it. I just got up and it was like, take the kids to school. And then that was it. I, I looked after the kids, got them into school. The wife was at work. That was it. I knew the, my mother and father-in-law were going to pick the boys up from school because it was just down from where they lived. Everything was done and dusted. You know, it's a weird... It's a weird one to try and explain, mate. Well, and I think that's the problem, is that people who aren't in that state of crisis don't have the capacity to understand it because you're trying to understand a mind that is broken. I mean that in a positive way, like an empathetic way. Like we have that innate desire to thrive and reproduce and continue our lineage. Suicide goes against the very moral fiber of being a human yeah. being. That's yeah. how... 
you know, that's how miswired it becomes through all these things we talked about, childhood trauma and sleep deprivation and alcohol yeah. and, you know, relationship breakdowns and uh, organizational betrayal and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You get to that point where you are not thinking the same way you would when you were well rested and, you know, not abused yeah. as a child, you know, I mean, it's a totally yeah. different thing. So you cannot understand it. But at that person, that point, as you said, the brain had persuaded the person, hey, I've got an idea. And as you said with Kevin, and as with that near miss with you, right when that attempt is made, what's tragic is that most people that that wire clicks back in, they're like, I was wrong. And it was too late at that point, you know, and it's just like, fuck, if we could just put that on the posters, if you are feeling like you're a burden to the world, that's the thing. Not think of your kids thinking, well, I am thinking of them. I'm a burden. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. get out of here now. If you think you're a burden, that to me is the biggest red flag that you need to pick up the phone now because your brain is starting to lying to you. And once it gets to that point, you know, you really are in, in such a uh, you know, twilight zone that it's going to be very hard to get you back unless someone from the outside looking in realizes it before you complete suicide. Absolutely. And, you know, I don't know how it works in the US with your emergency services, but, you know, when you've completed uh, whether it be 20 years in the police and the US or the fire service or done 30 years over here. That's it. Once you've gone, you've gone. And that circle of friends that you thought you had, one or two might hang about with you, but the vast majority, oh, yeah, James, he, he was he was a great firefighter, paramedic, and that's it really. You know, we don't go around to his for a barbecue now or, you know, we might see him at a get-together. And that's it. And then that gives that, sadly, that person who's given their all to the job and just doing their job because, let's face it, it's it's not everyone's cup of tea, but we do it because that's what we want to do. And they're left to ponder all those years of trauma. And so, again, the suicide rate in those that have retired from emergency services is huge. But over here, it's something, again, that our emergency services really struggle to look at and, and work out a dare we say, a package of sorts to continue to help someone or those individuals. Because as far as they're concerned, it's a bit like leaving the army. Once you're gone, you're gone. That's it. You've done your time. You, you're a number. You know, um, I still remember my warrant card number as a police officer, which was four digits. You know, 4473, that was me. In the military, I was 2474283. So there's a similarity in numbers. But I'm not remembered for the good stuff. I remembered as a number. That's it. And it is just such a poor reflection on our emergency services that we, you know, especially over here, we, we don't look after, uh, dare I say, our veterans. Whereas in the States, you know, you do an amazing job. The majority of the time, I would suggest, in looking after your military veterans and those from the emergency services. Over here, we seem to have a completely different outlook on stuff, which is poor. And we're trying to rebalance the, the scales over here now with bringing in those sort of elements into our presentation. So, you know, we're giving those people hopefully a bit more of a lifeline than they might have had earlier on, you know. So we, we're still trying our best for everyone. Yeah, actually, I'll uh, I'll counter what you said. So the VA is definitely there for our military veterans. I've heard lots of horror stories, you know, some success stories. The emergency services, zero. Like I just recently became... Um, uh, introduced to the firefighters charity 
which I think is right. phenomenal in the UK. We don't. So when you leave police, fire, EMS, you have no health insurance, you have no mental health support, nothing. When that door closes wow. behind you, you are done. You might have a pension. I didn't even have a pension. I cashed mine in to be a professional podcaster, but um, you know that's it. So this is the problem. I see it here. I see it there. You have this life of service the most likely place for physical and mental health things to really start blooming is in yeah. the retiree. You know, that's when the cancers really show up, the heart disease, you know, the, the, uh, the, the addictions get worse and worse. And you had someone that at least when they were uni wearing uniform, if they were in, you know, a group that they wanted to be in, you had a tribe, you had a sense of purpose, you know, you identified as a profession, you walked in, you know, someone was telling me when my, um, Friends from my last apartment, you know, when you walk into a supermarket wearing bunker gear, the firefighters gear, you know, people yeah. are smiling at you and, you know, you're getting looks from women and, you know, you're giving little kids stickers. I mean, you're, you're revered. Now, a day after that, you walk into a supermarket, the same exact person, but your <laughs> ego is like, oh, we're not that oh. anymore. So there's all <laughs> these layers and then you take this discussion that we just had, this accumulation of trauma that someone's had through their career, and then you add that, now again, you've got a perfect storm. So the retirees are absolutely, I think, one of the most important people that we've got to pull back into this discussion. Yeah, um, do you know, when we was in Florida, in just prior to the off-duty incident in 2012, um, we were staying um, uh, kissing me, and we'd done all the touristy stuff, we'd been out shopping and brought loads of Levi jeans because it was a lot cheaper and added as trainers and bits and pieces. And we'd gone out to one of the theme parks for the day. And we come back, and I noticed the front door was open. The kids run, got out of the car. They're running up the path to get into the house. They just want to get into the swimming pool. And I was, Dad, the front door's open. And I just looked at my wife. And we had this routine that we would religiously lock everything up, put the alarm on. That was the last thing I did get in the car and go off to have our day out wherever we were going. And this, the neighbour came across and he went, I thought it was a bit strange that your front door was open. And I was like, oh, fuck, I'm going straight. There's someone in there. I didn't think then that clearly out in the States, you carry firearms. I'm going in there like a, a man possessed. And I went in the kitchen. I got a big knife and I went running and screaming around the house. And thankfully, there was no one in there. This police officer, the uh, local sheriff, turned up. Huge, massive Hispanic guy. I mean, he he made Dwayne Johnson look like I don't know a dwarf. <laughs> he was just the biggest man I've ever seen. And he gave us a lecture and all the rest of it. And then when I said to him, "Look, mate, I'm an ex-military bloke. I'm a police officer. The wife's a police officer." Broke down all the barriers. We had a a right good laugh. And he just said to me, "He said that's typical." of you Brits just to go in. He says, you don't have guns, you don't have this. And you know, my mind started racing a little bit. And I explained to him what had happened um, prior to me going to court. And he went, so you don't carry firearms? I said, no. I said, you know, our justice is, you know, if it comes down to it, the bare knuckles of the widowmakers, left and right. Um, and, you know, we have a capture spray, we have our batons. I was a taser carrier. Um, yeah, and he was like, he said, we don't understand you, you brick cops. And then when he explained to me, he'd just come back from having had two weeks away from work because he'd just shot another person 
who had died as a result of his interaction. And you weigh up that those two sort of jobs. He'd saved his partner's life through taking this individual's life. I'd saved two young coppers' lives because I've had to punch someone. And then we both sat there out in his car, having he'd shown off all his firearms to me and you know <laughs> and I was not interested because they're loaded and and you know, whatever. And then he went, So what happens to, to me? So I said, What do you mean? He said, what happens to me when I leave? I said, I don't know. I said, I'm going back to the UK next week. I'm possibly looking out of prison. What's going to happen to me? And we left the conversation stone dead, just like that. We shook each other's hands. He said, oh, he said I'll come by tomorrow. I'll come out for a ride out. And I was like, oh, I'd love to. Um, but it never happened. Um, but again, equally, I had a friend who used to fly jets out of RAF Lakenheath. Um, you know, he'd been on numerous uh, well, Afghan, Iraq, and you know, Adam was an amazing pilot. Um, but when he left, he was sort of like, and when he left the UK, we had a a good good drink up, let's put it that way. And he went, well, what do I do now? And it just seems to be that huge void, and that seems to follow everywhere. And I think, you know, on a very personal level, what we deliver, uh, it just wakes people up a little bit, and it it just, I think infuses them to, to stand up and go, yeah, I've ticked a lot of them boxes. I've seen that in my partner, my wife, my husband, whatever. Um, it's about time we did something, you know, but for some reason, as bold as we can be within our own countries or as a country in dealing with shit, when we're dealing with shit on our front doorstep, we don't know where to wipe it. And it very often sadly results in that bit of dog shit just getting wiped out by a suicide or another act of whatever, um, and no one cares. And that is just, it's disgraceful. You know, as I say, mate, I think between us, if we can raise that awareness big time uh, in the states where you are, you know, and people over here listen to, to the podcast, then just give people a, a little bit of a, an encouragement and a platform to be accountable for themselves for once rather than everyone else, you know, and that's the way I look at it now. You know, I went through that. If I can prevent a person, a family from going through what I put my family through, then, you know, we have, we've really achieved. And I hope, I really hope that once we get our charitable status and we get some strong funding, who knows, come over to the States and, and deliver what we're doing over here just to give people the confidence to, to speak out, you know, that's that's my aim, and I, you know, I'm pleased in the knowledge that we've we've helped so many people over here, you know, to date. Um, you know, pre-COVID, we were getting people treated, we were getting a tra- trauma-focused assessments, and then treated thereafter if they needed it. Unfortunately, you know, COVID came along, um, and it stopped all the fundraisers from doing great stuff for us and our clinical team just become overwhelmed and overburdened with people screaming for help, you know, so much so that we've, we had to stop, you know, referring people to our clinicians and we're having to signpost individuals now to other areas, which I don't like doing, but eventually I think hopefully we'll get back to where we were and we'll get people treated and looked after. Well, I want to wrap with that then. So we kind of have you sitting on the embankment with a train whizzing by um, towards the south coast 
Um, walk me through how you went from there and your own healing journey, and then let's transition into PTSD 999 and what you're doing now with this amazing journey that you've been through yourself. So I sat on the embankment and I cried like a newborn baby, I think through the shock of what I just tried to do. Then the concern of I've got to tell someone what I've just tried to do. Um, tell the wife. Um, you know, she was just coming to terms with the fact that I'd, I'd had this full clinical diagnosis of complex chronic PTSD. Um, and, you know, she had her own struggles given the job that she had been doing in the Met Police with child protection and whatever. Um, and when I drove home, I felt physically sick. You know, I was in the car crying again, um, oblivious to everyone. And I got home, I went in through the front door, um, and the wife was home. And she looked at me, and I was in dog order. I was covered in mud and shit, and, you know, my eyes were red raw, and I just broke down in floods of tears again. And I explained what I just had attempted to do. Um, thankfully, the kids weren't at home. Um, and she was brilliant. I didn't know what to expect from her, you know, having just taken on board what I just told her what I tried to do in the last hour or so. Um, I then had a shower and went to bed. And I got up the following morning, um, still clearly upset. Um, and she said to me, what are you going to do now then? And there was that horrible pause because I, I didn't have an answer. I normally got an answer for everything. And, you know, I just looked at her and started crying again. And I said, oh, I just want to stop this. I want to stop the pain. I want to stop this feeling that I've got. Um, and she said, right, well, just be you. You can do something. And I thought about it. Um, I got in contact with a mate of mine, a former military guy, and we had a long discussion. I told him what I'd attempted to do. Um, and then we met up and we decided that we'd sort of put something in place because he was a, a former captain in the parachute regiment. It had nothing to do with the um, emergency services. A lot of his guys that left him had gone into the emergency services. So he had that connection. Excuse me. Um but that was about it. When I explained to him what had happened, because he'd been with me throughout the court journey and everything, um, we went, right, well, we clearly got to put something together. So come up with the idea of PTSD 999, which was simply going to be at that time for the British Transport Police because we were dealing, if I was to say that I dealt with two to three fatalities a week, um, that was an average. The bombings being an exception, um, you know, I, I think on one shift I'd actually three in one day, which was a bit of a long day. Um, but yeah, we set it up and it started off as a social media thing. In the back of our minds, we both knew that it had potential to grow legs. Um, and in a very short period of time, it did. Um, so we started just saying, well, you know, we need to get hold of some trauma focused therapists now, not just any old therapist, someone who actually understands trauma. 
Um, so people started doing fundraisers for us. We got ourselves registered at a company's house as a limited company, non-for-profit. Um, and it just went from there, and it just went from strength, strength to strength. We've had a lot of ups and downs with it because good people have come and have turned into bad people because they're not getting a that golden bucket of money at the end of the day. There was uh, that perception. Um, everyone that does stuff for us, we're all volunteers. No one gets any payment. We do it because we can and we want to. So, you know, um, in my day job, I give up all my annual leave and take un- unpaid uh, days to, to go and give presentations and the people that join me do the same. Um, and we got to a point where we were applying for our charitable status, um, but then the pandemic kicked in. So it screwed us all. Um, so we've had to reinvent the wheel. Um, we've got we've turned things around again. Uh, we've got our own social media platforms. Um, we're doing all manner of stuff. We, as we discussed earlier, we made that little film, short film. We did a music video. We're out giving presentations up and down the UK now. Um, and we've got some sponsors. They're by no means giving us millions of pounds. We're lucky if we get a couple of hundred quid. But it's a couple of hundred quid that we can put back in the pot that allows us to go out and give our presentations to develop the little bit of merchandising, you know, whether it be wristbands or T-shirts or whatever, um, but also enables us to work with other professional people to get what we've currently got in relation to the delivery of our awareness um, presentation. We're working on delivering mental health first aid, suicide prevention in the new year. Um, our sort of right-hand man, he's been away and he's done the courses now, um, which are nationally uh, recognised. So he can then train people to become trainers. And that's that's the goal is to get out there and be as big as, as was put to me a number of years ago, we could be as big as Help for Heroes, which is a, a unique charity over here for our veterans. Um, and, yes, I, that's where I want to go. Nothing's going to get in my way. I don't care who I piss off on that route. I'm doing it because it needs to be done. And I hope that should I fall over tomorrow and end up six feet under the ground or put in the oven, some someone will take up the chalice and and continue to deliver it because it is much needed, not only in the UK, but around the world. And that's in a nutshell where we currently are. Beautiful. And just before we get to where people can find that in the film, what were the tools that ended up working for yourself personally? You talked about finding the right counsellor, for example. Were there any specific things that really worked for you that, that pulled you back from that dark place that you were in? Do you know what? It, in a nutshell, James, speaking to good people like you, accepting that I've got issues, that's a huge one. That individual needs to look at themselves. And, you know, there I use some of the old wording, you know, pick yourself up, brush yourself down and crack on. To a degree, yes, you have to do that. But by acknowledging that you're struggling with your mental health, accepting it, realising what your triggers are and doing whatever you can to um, negate those triggers, PTSD isn't curable, not yet. It's manageable. So if we can learn to manage the stuff that we might find distressing, whether it be the first anniversary of an event, I don't know, social media popping up and catching you off guard, 
have something in place. For me, you know, as I just said, talking to amazing people like you, you've experienced it, you understand it. Um, it's very cathartic. Talking to all the people that I have done over the years, again, it's an amazing thing that people who have not said anything to anyone will come up to you afterwards and thank you and then give you their story. So it's, it's that thing that keeps driving me forward as many setbacks as we've had and knockbacks that we have had, and don't get me wrong, we've had plenty. It just inspires me to carry on. I've got a good team around me now, all volunteers, all with various experiences. But you know what, mate? As long as we can do this and people listen, um, and you know, you've got a, a big set of ears out there listening to your podcast daily. Um, you know, if people can take something away from our discussion today and go, do you know what? That made a little bit of sense or recognised some of the things that have been said or discussed, then we're, we're clearly walking in the right direction. Absolutely. Now, for people listening, where can they find PCSD 999 online? So um, if you, we're on Twitter, um, we're on YouTube now. Just type in PTSD999. Um, if you need to contact us via email, our email address is support at ptsd999.org.uk. Or if people want to email me direct, it's Gary, that's G-A-R-Y, dot Hayes, and that's H-A-Y-E-S, at ptsd999.org.uk. Um, yeah, uh, little films on YouTube now as we speak. If you look for Broken Glass, A Fragile Mind, um, you'll come across it. Um, the music video, I believe, is on um, YouTube as well, or at least on my Facebook page. Um, so, again, it's just Gary Hayes uh, on the Facebook page. Um and you'll find all the details you need on there. Um, and please don't be shy. Um, if you're going to email from the States, there's no reason why we can't have a conversation. You know, it's just going to be like speaking to a colleague from the UK. We've all had similar experiences and hopefully we'll be able to give you some answers to those difficult questions. Absolutely, 100%. I want to hit on one little thing, and I don't know what the answer is going to be, but it, it, might be, <laughs> it might be an uplifting end to such a powerful, powerful conversation. But I want to just put it in there. There are a lot of people that say they miss 912 in the US. And obviously, the meaning of that is the community being pulled together, the kind of opposite of what we saw the last two years, really. Where yeah. whether it was you know churches and synagogues and mosques and all coming together, and we saw it in Grenfell too. If you watch some of the yeah. documentaries, Wh what did you see or what were kind of you hearing about the kind of seven eight mentality in London? Because from the outside looking in, I saw that kind of we're not going to let the terrorists scare us mentality in some of the reports that I saw, but I was on the other side of the Atlantic. So was there that community around that horrendous event as well? Yeah. Um, I would say pretty much like post 9-11 for you guys, we become very stoic and there was communities coming together that would never have normally come together in the manner that they did. You know, when we were going out, stopping and searching. Now, when you think about the the terrorists and their ethnicity, 
prior to the bombings, it was always going to be a problem because we were just simply racist cops and this, that and the other. Do you know what? Every stop and search we did for months and months after 7-7, we got no dramas, no issues, and everyone actually pulled together. Um, we had, uh, uh, I think it was a 10-year celebration or a five-year celebration at St Paul's Cathedral in London. And the turnout was incredible. There were lots of bereaved families there, lots of survivors, lots of members of our emergency service who did an most amazing job um, over that period of time. But the general public were just amazing. And isn't it sad when it takes such a, an awful event for people to come together and, you know, what? realise that you know, whilst we're not always going to get on together on this planet, there are oh, there should be more times than not that we should be at least helping each other. You know, I, I found it very um, – it was a very strange time, but one I'd like to look at and go, you know, do we really need to go through another major trauma like that for people to, I don't know, want to help each other irrespective of where they're from? Absolutely. I always butcher this quote, but Anne Frank said something to, you know, something like, um, the dead always get more flowers than the living because um, grief is more powerful than regret. And I thought that was such a powerful way of looking at it. I just went to uh, a celebration of life. My wife's best friend just, just had a, a surgery for cancer and passed away two days later. Um, and, you know, that same thing was kind of was said over and over again. Oh, we need to get together more. It shouldn't be a tragedy that bonds us together. And it shouldn't be a tragedy that divides us from, you know, some of these leaders, quote unquote, that are separating communities. That tells you that you have the wrong people in power as well. So I'm hoping that we can kind of be reminded by some of these stories and start rebuilding those communities because we are. And you, you, you know, we get into a war, now you're British again you know or you're in the world cup now you're english but a second ago you're stabbing each other because you're from barking and you're from dagenham so yeah i mean we have yeah. to remember like okay tribalism can be very positive or very negative and we have to choose those sides wisely absolutely um yeah i think you've just nailed the whole sort of couple of hours on on the head there with that that is just such a a poetic end to it and that's you know we're never going to live in that perfect world clearly but if we can do our best to help each other to a degree, then we're halfway there. Absolutely. Well, Gary, I want to say thank you so much. And I mean this from the bottom of my heart. And I always tell people the same thing. When they have gone to a place that I fully understand, you know, as you said, can be cathartic on one side, but also takes a piece of you as well. You know, it pulls the, the scab off, as it were. Yeah. But the value, the power of this storytelling, as I said, not just in the mental health conversation, but in the sexual abuse conversation as well, is so, so needed. And to have the courage and the vulnerability to tell your story I am just, you know, honored to, that you told it on this this uh, this show here, and and just so grateful that you came on today and spent almost three hours chatting with me. So thank you so so much. No, James, um, I would, I don't know how to express my thanks to you um, for asking me to come on. Um, I'm just grateful you've given us a couple of hours of your time to tell a little bit of our story and you know exchange the conversations that we have, mate. It's um, yeah, thank you. And I will say I'm very humble. Thank you.